Hey everybody, welcome back to the program. This is As Lutheran As It Gets, as always. I am your co-host, Pastor Dalvin Riley, the Techno Viking, joined, as always, by the coffee roaster, the Zen master of all things that are beanie and mm. coffee and java-y and mm. the predator, Pastor Fur. Pastor Fur. Chris Gillespie. There we go. <laughs> Transpose that. I actually got my Zen going yesterday walking through Costco. So, Oh, wow. Well, Costco Zen say, is a different kind of Zen than coffee. It's a different zen. kind of flow state. It is. I feel it's like I'm playing Frogger when I go to Costco. It's like sample, <laughs> distraction, food, sample, another distraction. <laughs> well, we always go in the morning. So the only people that are there with us are Asians and old people. Oh, yes. It's good for people watching. Oh, it's fantastic for people watching. But like I said, trying to go from aisle to aisle is like playing Frogger because you they'll they don't care. Old no. people do not care no, no, if no. you're in their way. Yeah, you're, it's it's bumper carts. It is. And the parking lot's worse. <laughs> I park as far away as I can. Figure I can use the exercise. Exactly. That's right. I spent 20 minutes. I had dropped Annie off at Costco. She had to run in real quick, quote unquote, real quick. And I had the baby. <laughs> so we were driving in circles in the parking lot, doing laps. And uh, she got jammed up. So yeah, we were driving circles for about 20 minutes. And that in and of itself, I felt like I deserved like a second driver's license. Like I'd earned my class C driver's license or something, just being able to maneuver through the tar- uh, the Costco parking lot. Yeah. Oh, there's somebody backing up. Didn't check. Exactly. The, no brake lights. There's someone merging into me who doesn't seem to care that I that I'm in the right lane. You got to get a good spot. You do it's far away, like you said. <laughs> it's rough. Today's episode brought to you by Topo Chico Mineral Water, the very bestest mineral water in the world. And I have GT's kombucha. Ginger do Aid. Do you like yes. that? It's too vinegary for me. Uh, no, I actually, I, th- I think it's less vinegary than some. I like okay. it. I also like it because it's like pseudo-spiritual. There which, you go. So I get my, my spiritual thing going on. Makes you feel a little bit holy, a little bit more religious. Yeah, like words of enlightenment. You already yeah. know what it is you desire. Next, you must focus on allowing yourself to receive. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> I'll see that encounter you with. Thou shalt not covet. <laughs> oh, enlightened for everyone everywhere. There we go. I Meanwhile, like it's yes, it's a, a vinegary green and black tea drink with. That ginger. really is America in a nutshell, though. That's the whole American ethos: is to take uh, another person's religion and, and commodify it. <laughs> yeah. Well, that and would, then we buy it and go. But I'm being spiritual because I'm I'm an enlightened person when I drink this. The the wise sage who spoke that saying was Erica Broadland. Holistic chef from Asheville, North Carolina. Shout out to Erica. Yep. Holistic chef. I hope you catch catch our podcast and enjoy it. I think I I should start advertising myself as a holistic pastor. (laughs) (laughs) You deal with the whole person. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Body, soul, and mind. Donovan Riley, holistic pastor. That's great. Like uh, Dirk Dirk Gently, holistic detective. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Shout out to Elijah Wood. Yeah. He'll always be Frodo to me, buddy. That's true. He did do that. Was that on the BBC, right? The show? Mm-hmm. I, I just remember reading the book. Douglas yes. Adams. Yes, exactly. May you rest The in book peace. is better. <laughs> so today, in case you hadn't noticed, we're not going to read. We're just going to talk about random subjects that flit across the surface of our psyche. There's a or, psyche? <laughs> right. Psych out. Psyche. Suke. Psychic. We're going to read uh, Ingemar Oberg. Lutheran World Mission, a Historical and Systematic Study. It's a little book. 
real a real quick read. It is approximately four hundred. 501 pages. Oh. 501 pages. And yet, it is actually very readable. Uh, Dean Oppel, who did the translation of this, did a wonderful job, I think, of uh, making it readable. Okay. And the footnotes, too. Footnotes are really well done. The Weimar Ausgabe footnotes are even translated in Engli- into English for you. If you don't have access to the Weimar or can't read Latin or German. And, <laughs> and dandy. Uh, yeah. But, and it's... Uh, <sighs> For those of you who either weren't alive or don't remember, in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was a big push in a lot of denominations in the United States to really get on board the the missionary missions, evangelicalism, evangelism bus. And a lot of money and resources and efforts were put into evangelism and outreach and missions. Mm, it's kind of like the both. hamburger train, right? Right. Or the exactly. gravy train. The gravy train. What was that? Uh, the former administration. It was called a Blaze, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, Blaze. The Blaze program, ministry network. Right, and there was, was the, the ticker on the website. So every time you had an ablaze moment. That's right. Like a, That's right. It wasn't a blaze moment. It was a critical moment. moment. It was a critical Whenever moment. Whenever you were set on fire by God. That's right. Spontaneous <laughs> combustion indicates conversion. There we go. But yeah, so in the, in the previous uh, uh, synodical administration, that was a big push for them, the Ablaze Ministry or Ablaze Program. And um, that was a part of this this movement, this, I don't want to call it a fad because that seems dismissive, but it was a fad. It was a big deal. It was made to be a big deal. Um, however, uh, it wasn't really a fad because if you talk with older pastors, they'll tell you that they had similar experiences in the 90s, 80s, and 70s, yeah. and in the 60s. <laughs> of of the church body saying we need to get out more and do more missions yeah there's it seems to be a problem with us desiring to interact with our neighbors <laughs> that's uh, consistent a yeah. there is a consistent problem there for sure especially amongst the immigrant population mm-hmm. nowadays we don't really have an immigrant population as far as germans go or lutherans right. or we just I'm create sorry, other tribes right right we create other tribes exactly mm-hmm. and so lutherans have we were talking before we got on the air that Initially, and this is something that Oberg takes up in the beginning of the book, is why didn't Luther send out missionaries? Well, the simple answer is because they would have all been killed. Because remember, folks, in the 1500s, Lutherans were outlaws. And there's stories, I think I've told them on this podcast even, there's stories of Calvinist missionaries who tried to go to South America and were literally arrested and burned to death on the beach. Ouch. Like they didn't even get onto, like they didn't even get on a dry land. They're standing on the beach. They were arrested and burned at the stake. And for being Calvinists, they weren't Roman Catholics. So it wasn't as if Luther could send out missionaries. His own students were burned when they went home for holidays. They were burned at the stake, which is, dear Christians, one and all rejoice. That's why he wrote that hymn for two of his students that were burned at the stake when they went home. Oh, yeah, that's right. And so it wasn't easy for Luther or anybody else to send out missionaries because they were outlaws. And it really wasn't until later then when the German Empire began to evolve, especially in the era of the Bismarck. And then the missionaries essentially followed the military and and worked their way around the world in that way in a large respect. Like, and you can work with that, right? I mean, you yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, a little sword to the throat and convert or die. It works. <laughs> That's right, exactly. God can still use that to get the gospel out. And that evolved into the 19th century and then into the 20th century and a heavy emphasis by a lot of denominations on mission. And so you had Lutheran missionaries and Methodist missionaries and Baptists and Roman Catholics and, and Calvinists, Presbyterian, Episcopal, all over the world, Africa, South America, China, the Far East, so forth and so on. You also see creation of pan-denominational 
Missionary outfits. Yeah. That's right. In the in the 1930s, the ecumenical movement became really popular. It did. And that was really when the big push to do ecumenical mission work took off, I think. And and then after the Second World War in particular, obviously, as the world began to open up more and more, there was more and more missionary work. But then in the United States in the past, what, 50 years now, there's also this emphasis on, okay, well, we're not an immigrant population anymore. So who are we doing outreach and evangelism to? And mm. that then began the push into the Latino communities, the black communities, um, Asian communities, immigrant communities. And then in the present tense, like you just said, now we're asking the question of why are we so segregated in churches? Well, we've created other tribes. We call them the de-churched and the unchurched. Right, exactly. And, you know, the 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 nuns, isn't that the new one? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, who have no... N-O-N-E, not N-O-N-E, N-O-N-E have no not spiritual the, affiliation or... Uh, right. inclination of any sort. Right. They're not really agnostic or even atheistic. They're just, they just don't indifferent. Care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and this is the thing then that what I appreciate about Oberg's book and do we read um oh uh, Mission from the Cross by uh Schultz? Have we read that yet? No, we haven't. Okay, we'll have to do that too. That's a really good book um, by Professor Schultz. Yeah, it might dovetail nicely, actually. Yeah. Um, that what Oberg covers then is this history of Lutheran mission, but he does it in a very solid Reformational theology way. And he doesn't try and redefine Lutheranism to fit his categories of mission or evangelism. But most of the book is actually an explanation of Dr. Luther's exegesis, more than anything. I'd say at least 60% of this book is just explaining Luther's exegesis from Genesis through Revelation, actually, on the matter of what is mission. Because Olberg correctly hits on it that mission is what? Proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the delivery of the gifts. Well, that's often and, a challenge, right? That people approach mission as as like a practical discipline and not a theological right. discipline. It's, it's a, a side note to the real ministry of the church or the real mission of the church. Well, no, in many cases, the, the outreach of the congregation is the real ministry and not the reception mm-hmm. of <laughs> preaching and teaching and the sacrament right. um, week in, week out. Well, and you and I both know people who have been sent out on missions who have been told to de-emphasize like the sacraments mm, yeah, and liturgy. Yeah, because, and, and don't baptize somebody if it's going to, like, cause problems. Right, exactly. And so when you <laughs> really? go somewhere, don't don't interfere with what's already going on, but rather kind of adopt and adapt and very slowly then introduce these things, which there is something to that. And that might be the right practice, right? Well, yeah. as a missionary, former missionary, I can say for sure that it, when you go into the mission field, no matter how prepared you are, if you've never been there before, there's a lot of learning that you need to do culturally, language, colloquialisms, idioms, history, whatever, what have you. And there's a lot of learning. And and just like rural ministry, when you go to a foreign country, you have to earn their trust. You have to prove yourself to be trustworthy, even if there's already a pre-established mission there. Because you're, unless you were a product of that culture, yeah, right. um, you're not going to be relatable, and mm-hmm. uh, you're going to be an outsider, or at least perceived mm-hmm. as much, and right. not be received for quite a while. Right, exactly. And so, yeah, there is a lot of work, a lot of interpersonal work to be done as a missionary. But mm-hmm. what is the basis for that work? Is it to get to the gospel and the sacraments? Is it to proclaim Christ in such a way that Regardless of the cultural, linguistic, or historical differences, the gospel is the gospel. It's applicable to all people at all times and all places, regardless of the color of your skin, your economic status, where you come from, where you're going, any of that stuff. 
And I think this is the key point then, and I discovered this as a missionary because I was with non-denominationals, primarily born-again evangelicals, charismatics, Pentecostals, mm-hmm. is that it was our work and it was our attitude and our behavior that was really the thing in our preaching. And to give the word of God its kind of basis for being received, you had to be excited. You had to be, you know, lack of a better term, on fire for Jesus. You had to be in 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 the culture. Mm-hmm. And you had to be working every day in the culture versus what you're talking about, too, which is that the gospel and the gifts are almost like a side note or an afterthought to, well, we got to do mission. Well, they're, they're more of a, a core, of course, right? Uh, yes, we're Christians, mm-hmm. so of course we gather for worship, and, and of course we have the sacraments, right. baptism, Lord, Supper, because that's what we do. Right. But it's it's really just a cultural assumption, you know, a church cultural assumption, Absolutely. and you can't presume that the native culture is going to follow those same assumptions, right? Right. Well, and if the gospel were being preached and the gifts were being handed out, then the church wouldn't be in decline, mm. according to our catechism mm-hmm. in the third article. And therefore, if like you said, if you go to a place where there's whatever designation category, dechurched, unchurched, nuns, or whatever, <laughs> that means the gospel is not being preached there either. Mm-hmm. And so I remember in the early 2000s when you'd go to church, a lot of churches on the inside of the front door had, you are now entering the mission field on the inside of the front door. So that when you're walking out of church. Right, exactly. You're going into the mission field. But then some churches up the ante by putting that on the inside and the outside of the door and saying, when you go into church on Sunday, you're going into the mission field also because there are people in church who might not be believers or who doubt or who need the gospel preached to them. And it, it... it a lot of times seemed to me, and this is just my opinion, it just seemed to me like we were we didn't really define it, and therefore we were a group of people in search of a definition. Well, and the and danger it, with that especially is if we get if you get too far afield from say the third article of the Creed and the Catechism, you're yeah, you're going to uh, consider yourself the agent of the mission, right? Exactly. So, so so to go in the mission field is to go where we go and do what we need yes. to do to make disciples, you know. Right, and that's a great point, that Jesus in Matthew, for example, points out that he's already at work in the world when we get there. <laughs> so it's not I take Jesus to the prisoner or the thirsty person or the naked person or whatever. He's already there. <laughs> he says, whatever you do to the least of these, you have done to me. We're, we, we very subtly flip that and say, well, whatever I do to the least of these, Jesus is doing through me. It's like we were talking about yesterday in regards to First John and love, oh, yeah. is that we, we want to read that prescriptively. You have to love each other or else. <laughs> Versus the way he actually writes, which is descriptively, this is just the way you do now. This yeah. is the way you love now because you have been loved. You're going to love each other this way. And what we do with that then is when we read it prescriptively, we think that, well, I have to imitate the love of Jesus to other people. I have to follow the example of Jesus's love for other people versus no, when you go and you meet your neighbor, recognize that Jesus is in your neighbor. The spirit of God is at work in your brother and sister in Christ. This is one for whom Jesus died. So it's not like you're, you're not being Jesus to your neighbor, but you're recognizing. I think what you had said to me is not, you don't ask what love doesn't ask. What would Jesus do? Love asks who does Jesus love? Mm Mm-hmm. And the answer and is... And the answer is always you. <laughs> yeah. And so we don't say, what would Jesus do? We ask, who would Jesus love? Which is everybody, you. Likewise, then, who is who needs the gospel? Yeah. Everybody. Yeah, and we turn, the, we turn love, uh, and I would say missions as well, into a kind of a new form of legal 
legal code, right? So this is right, what, it's a different uh, kind of piety. If we if we're going to succeed, maybe even on a local level, uh, domestically, if we're going to succeed mm-hmm. succeed in this congregation, these are the things that we need to be doing. Um, right, apart, exactly. And this these are things, law. yeah. In addition to, of course, word and sacrament, and that's how we phrase right. it. Of course, we have those things going on, but but if we don't have mercy work, if we don't have um, door-to-door evangelism, if we don't have youth groups, if we don't have all these things going on, then then we're not fulfilling the mission and the whole thing's going to fall apart. It's going to be like a house of cards. Well, it just becomes another form of works righteousness because mm-hmm. it, it, it it doesn't emphasize how you minister in your own vocation or how, again, it's, it's the difference between the language of instrumentality, mm-hmm. that in your vocation, you are the instrument of the spirit in your vocation versus the language of agency, which is in your vocation, you must do say these things because that's your calling. But then separating quote unquote missionary work from your vocation creates this, it, it, it frames mission, the being mission missional, which is another, mm-hmm. again, an it's adverb another, that we just, yeah. we just invented an adverb because well, we needed to sell something <laughs> that it's a religious work. Now all of a sudden mm-hmm. it's actually a special kind of religious work that is over and above your vocational work. But it's interesting how it's used to accuse Right, we're not yeah, doing exactly, enough. Exactly. And You're not being aren't missional. You, aren't you concerned about all those people who are dying outside of faith? Right. You know, and so we use it as in form of a threat, which um, might be helpful in a sense, right? <laughs> if if you're lazy, um, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or if you're denying your own baptism or who you are, who who you are in Christ, right? Yeah. Um, but that's not really where the conversation goes. Usually, it usually just goes back to you need to be doing more and giving more right. and working harder. And right. if we if you don't, we're going to fail. They're going to fail. They're going to die. Right. And the church is going to die, and it's going to be all your fault. And it's so that it seems to me, at least in the most recent kind of reincarnations of this missional or mission outreach focus, um, is that desperation, that fear, that anxiety mm-hmm. is driving it. Well, I wonder. I wonder, and again, I'm thinking out loud here. I wonder how much of this is generational too, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That you get to a certain age and you look over your shoulder, and nostalgia kicks in, and you struggle with guilt or fear or insecurity about what have you really done? Or you look at your own congregation and you wonder why there's not as many people in Sunday school anymore or why the, why the church is half full on Sundays or why there's nobody to serve on the altar guild anymore or X, Y, and Z. And especially if you're a church leader or a religious politician, you, you do that and you actually have the power and the resources to say, I need to do something. We, we need to do something about this because this is a crisis. Yeah. And like you said, things like Jesus crucified for your sin become kind of an uh, of course, of course, Hmm. versus, well, but catechetically speaking, the only reason that we believe the church shrinks is because the gospel is not being preached. Yeah. And so why would, if if it's not being preached in our congregations, how are we to preach it to those who have never heard it? Well, and your point about nostalgia, I think, is fair in that especially what people long for are the experiences they had during their most formative years, right? Usually in a right. teenage, or maybe not teenage, but even younger, or, or perhaps in their early 20s, 30s, something like that. They remember mm-hmm. those times. Uh, they don't remember them accurately. That's the first problem. Right, <laughs> um, right, right. They, you know, as a child, you remember, oh, this room, you know, the uh, the, the uh, what was it? The mall was so large, right? And it was amazing. Yeah, exactly. And then you walk into it, you know, thirty years later, and it seems kind of boring, small, and drab. Exactly. Yeah. So, you, so your memory isn't even accurate. But on the flip side of that too is that the um, uh, the drive or the passion, what you're looking for, 
isn't Christ and Him crucified, you're actually just looking again for just kind of that material or physical experience mm-hmm. that you had yeah. or emotional experience you had, which you, you're not going to have again. It was a momentary thing. Right. Um, and it's okay that things change and they differ and congregations, you know, swell and diminish. Mm-hmm. It, we, we like to think that if there's not this continual upward progression and expansion, then uh, the whole thing's going to fall apart. Which is actually a very corporate model of the church, mm-hmm. yeah. right? That you, the that you are governed by the need to constantly be growing, yeah, right? go Infinite big growth. or go home, right? Exactly. And then we commodify, in this case, missions, and we judge it by how many people are coming into the church, how many kids show up for Sunday school, how much has our budget swollen, so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. But then we ask, well, is the gospel being preached? Well, just look at how many people are here on Sunday. That becomes the judge. That becomes the litmus test of whether the gospel is being preached or not. Even that may be particularly dangerous because, depending on your context, um, right. the gospel can be an offense and stumbling block, right? And if you're if you're in a culture that uh, right. um, is really adopted a very different uh, view of Christ uh, and the purpose of the church, <laughs> you may, you may see a, a rapid contraction when Christ right. is preached faithfully. Well, think about missionaries who go somewhere where they practice polygamy. Mm. What do you do? When you open the Gospels up and Jesus starts talking about marriage, what do you do with that? Then when they say, well, what what do you mean? You believe that your God ordained that we should only be married to one woman? Yeah. that's That seems strange. In fact, like I've said before, uh, when I where I lived out in Mexico, you could go to the cliff that the natives used to throw priests off oh. for, preaching, for preaching monogamy to them. Oh, tourist stop. Yep, exactly. A lot of bones at the bottom of that cliff yeah. in the ocean. Let's not recreate that. Right. And so you see these these clashes historically between the missionaries and the cultures that they encounter. And some were successful and some were not so successful. And some learned from the mistakes of their their fathers, their predecessors. Others did not. But yeah, you see this all over the place. And I think in the United States in particular, because the Methodist circuit riders were so um, successful yeah. with opening. I mean, this is why... All people are Methodists in the United States. Everyone's a Methodist in the United States or a Baptist, just by genetics, because they were so good at going out. Again, my great-grandmother was a Methodist missionary to South Dakota from where her parents were missionaries in Montana. They went and built a school and a hospital on an Indian res in Montana. She grew up on the res, and then she went to South Dakota and served as a missionary in South Dakota at the beginning of the 20th century. And... That what everybody was. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't go anywhere where there wasn't a Methodist school or a Methodist hospital or a Methodist um, social services group mm. somewhere yeah. on the frontier. And then at the close of the frontier, at the end of the eighteen nineties, Methodism had to look for a different direction to go. Yeah. And yet, you see the popularity of Methodist hymns, <laughs> and you see the popularity of Methodist theology because historically they were everywhere. And then in desperation, when uh, uh, Lutherans needed English hymns because they were largely yeah, exactly. you know, Germans in the U.S., or at least our group was, um, then they sang Methodist hymns because that's what they could get a hold of. Right, exactly. Some of which were translated from German, old Lutheran hymns, but right. somewhat faithfully sometimes. No, yeah, I was going to say, not until, <laughs> not until the Second World War, though, was it popularly available. Yeah. So there's a lot. It, it's easy to criticize the past, obviously. Mm-hmm. It's very easy because they're not here to argue with us or contradict us or correct us or teach we us. We win. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And yet, what, the, what I'm framing is that not t- 
to look at that as a negative, but rather to take a step back and, and reflect on every generation thinks there's a crisis in the church and every generation comes up with a program to fix or solve the crisis. Mm. But historically speaking, it's usually the same fix, just yeah. repackaged. Well, it's interesting because one of the chief uh, missionaries in the U.S. Uh, from the Missouri Synod, his name was Friedrich Vinniken, and that's a, mm-hmm. I'm yeah. a descendant of Mr. Yellow Pants, uh, which he was known for apparently. But he was a circuit writer um, in Indiana primarily, but Ohio and right. elsewhere. And all he did, he took he took that Methodist methodology, and he went around and found Germans who had migrated or immigrated, um, go to their farms, say you need to get to church, mm-hmm. and I've got a, there's another farm over here, and there's one over there, and over here, let's put a church here, right, and uh, and just got them together. Uh, presumably there was gospel preaching involved, although that's not really well attested to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was really just, yeah, you guys need to be back in church. Your kids aren't baptized or confirmed right. or whatever. You're not. Um, and <laughs> uh, so maybe a little guilt driven too. So. Well, and Leah, Bill and Leah, mm-hmm. sending missionaries constantly in the United States. Yeah, and all over the place. Michigan, exactly. Iowa. Yeah. And actually, if you want to see how this happens in the early days of the LCMS, go get At Home in the House of Our Fathers, where yeah. that President Harrison translated that book he did. It's really, really fascinating, especially for me being in Minnesota, because um, the Fotenauer stuff, oh, he, right. was a di- he was a district president here first before he was Senate president. And so his letters about pastors riding these huge circuits and not knowing what was going to be there when they got to the church, whether it would even be open, whether someone had even started a fire in the cook stove. Were they were they going to, have to sleep in a ditch? Would they be fed? Um, all the things that went into establishing, like you said, those churches and what missions, so to speak, looked like in the early days of even the LCMS when they got here. Right. Um, that's a good place to look too. I think the Vinikins got some essays in there too. Yeah, and it's primarily we might say re-evangelism. You yeah, know, right. you're not you're not starting carte blanche. These are people who have some some inc- yeah. cultural. Um, uh, what do you want to say? Uh, cultural history in the tr- in right. churches, whether it was a state church in Germany or, or or some other form. Right. Well, and that's a good point too, though. You have to remember that this is a Christendom. This is the era of the of Christendom. Right. Nobody's not a Christian, <laughs> and so in go, some way, right? <laughs> in some way, exactly. Well, by virtue of the, by the dirt that you're standing on, you're a Christian. Right. But then you get to South America, you get to Africa, you get to the Far East, and well, not North Africa because the Christian Church has been there for a really long time already, but. Um, when you get deep, deep, deep down in Africa, um, that's then if the Roman Catholics get there first, there's a church there. Yeah. Done. It, it's only later than the, the Protestants start to go into these different areas and really, you know, fight, so to speak, with the Roman Catholics for a territory. It'd be interesting to read, I, I don't know where this is written, but read the history of uh, particularly the Missouri Senate's work in India, which mm-hmm. which saw, saw some pretty incredible uh, expansion and growth in, in its really beginning did. years. And then it rapidly diminished, I don't know, probably under some kind of Hindu oppression or whatnot. Um, and, right. and then in recent times, it's, it's seen a resurgence again. But uh, what, I mean, what were they doing? What, what, what was the secret sauce, you know, mm-hmm. the Szechuan well, sauce? <laughs> actually, since you ask, my one of my professors at Concordia Portland was a missionary in India for 15 years. Oh, there you go. And he was the one who introduced um, essentially what was called the home communion movement. I can't, I think that's, but essentially because of the Hindu society, if they found you being a Christian, you would be excommunicated from your family oh. and, and it had dire social consequences. Right. And so what they would do then is they would just get together once a week for dinner at someone's house. 
or that he would invite everybody over to someone's house for dinner, quote unquote, and then they would have a meal. And then at the end of the meal, they would celebrate the sacrament together. Mm. And it took off. It was extremely popular throughout India and spread out of India and all the way up into other areas in Pakistan and and other places. And after 15 years, he came back to the States and he told us all about that. And Mm. it was a very interesting conversation because there are people who were very negative about it because it wasn't done formally. It wasn't administered in a very Western right kind of way. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then there was others who said, no, this is like, we should be doing this here. Oh, and, let's let's adopt this. Yeah, this, exactly. This uh, novelty, really. Well, and especially in the Pacific Northwest in the mid to late nineties, hmm. Christianity in the Pacific Northwest was already on the down low at that yeah, point. They, yeah. they were past desperation. <laughs> well, yeah, when I was just as I had just as after I moved, one of the Lutheran churches had been sold to a Buddhist group that turned it into a temple. Hmm. And yeah, I mean, the church that I was at out there, uh, Zion Lutheran in downtown Portland, still there. But nonetheless, it's it's a different it's a different world altogether in the Pacific Northwest when it comes to being Christian. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I think this is the key point then too, and in, in why I think Oberg's book is so vital. Not only because it teaches you a good exegesis, good solid exegesis, and good solid sacramental theology in relation to missions. Um, like which other, and this came out before Schultz's book. So really, this was it for a while until Schultz's I think book. This came out. was uh, originally written in 1979 and translated yeah. in 2007. Maybe? Yeah, that sounds about right. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't really a lot that you could go on that wasn't redefining Lutheranism to fit into other theological missional categories. Right. Whereas this book is solidly Reformational Lutheran in its approach to exegesis, like I said, um, the sacraments and the relationship to missions, how we can take from the Old and the New Testament the right way in which to do world missions. Right. And so, and like I said, the introduction is a nice apologetic for why Lutherans weren't really, you know, big about world missions early on, and it's all practical. Right, and just because Luther wasn't doing missions doesn't mean that that he lacked a theology that would lead one to that well and then there's the whole question that does luther really consider the roman catholic church the church Mm. the papacy he doesn't consider the papacy the true church and so he can say that the gospel is still there because of the word you know the the absolution but when he sends people out to norway norway or no way when he sends people out to norway or sweden or he sends letters to bohemia for example he is attempting to get the gospel to people who don't know the gospel. Well, and in a way, I mean, that the, the catechism was his, uh, what do you want to say, evangelical Trojan horse, right? Really, it is. <laughs> well, not yeah, even a Trojan sure. horse. I mean, it was pretty obvious what he was trying to accomplish there because it was the Saxon visitation go around, and we need to re-evangelize the church. Right. But again, it's Christendom. There's nowhere that you can go, there's no dirt you can stand on that isn't quote-unquote Christian. Right. So he had... He had um, Maybe a little baggage, but but more more often than not, something to build upon that was already present. Right, exactly. That more, yeah, exactly. People knew the name of Jesus, for example. Mm-hmm. People were familiar with the liturgy of the church. Right. And you go into an area like South America, then, or you go to um, India or the Far East, go to Japan, even go to somewhere like Australia. Um, do they are they familiar with it or not? And are the native people there familiar with it or not? And like you said, are they going to be converted by the sword? And does that really count then <laughs> as legitimate Christian conversion? And then we come to the present tense, and without making a judgment either way, a lot of people that may have been declared Christian in the past, not Christians, yeah. because they were forced. 
<clears throat> and so now we're confronted with, I think, a more complex problem, which is everybody's familiar with Jesus in our culture, but nobody cares. Yeah, and which Jesus is it? Right, exactly. You know, it's some, and, some dist- I mean, they may know the name, but uh, it's some kind of radical distortion. Um and maybe intentionally even, right? Let's try to, like yeah. Jefferson did with his Bible, you know, let's try to get right. get down to a Jesus that's uh, approachable, accessible, and, uh, you know, the kind of stuff you could put in your fortune cookie. Right. Well, that's another offshoot of the Christian model for the church is, which which version of Jesus do you like best? Mm-hmm. Because we have eight in our neighborhood. Pick one. Okay, this is why the corporate model of the church, I think, became so popular, because we just basically said, well, we've got all these different flavors to choose from anyways, so let's now sell our version of Jesus as being the best version. Mm. <clears throat> and you see the overlap then between Christendom and corporate models of the church. But now in the present tense, when both of those models have broken down and are dead, and yet church bodies keep trying to prop them up and breathe life into them, we have a whole population of people who don't care. Yeah. They don't, it's not, that, like you said, it's not that they're antagonistic to the gospel. It's not that they don't want to talk about the gospel or challenge you about the gospel. They just don't care. Yeah. And in the marketplace of ideas, you know, religious right. ideas, uh, you know, that's, well, that's not really the game that Jesus wants to play, you know, in regards to how his word works and how it's presented. Right. It's like, oh, let's, you know, put you up against Buddha and right. you know, Vishnu and whoever else you want to listen to, right? Right. Or, and and see, see how he stacks up. Now, we would say, of course, it's true, right? Right. And of course, it's the most beneficial faith. <laughs> we, we say, yeah. he keeps saying, yeah. of course, um, but not to everyone. Right, exactly. right. <laughs> you know, uh, I was talking to someone who uh, was really concerned about uh, the United States not having as strong a, a moral backbone because we're not the the Christian nation that we used yeah, right. to be. And I said, "Well, you know, you wonder why in Europe, especially why? Oh, I don't know, a faith like Islam really is taking off in many right. places. Why is that? Because it has a strong moral code. Right. Because it provides." Uh, harmony through force and coercion but regardless mm-hmm. you know through laws and just obedience like the judeo-christian world did <laughs> just like the judeo-christian world did you're right so they're filling that vacuum of, of you know for people who um can't stand the idea of true freedom right because they're so worried about the potential for abuse or well this is a key point too is that in the same way that we should never point our fingers at our forefathers and say this is all your fault mm. Older people have to stop pointing their fingers at us and assume that this just magically happened overnight and that they are not, they did not sow the seeds of this rebellion. Yeah, there's some uh, complicity. Again, we don't like freedom, but at the same time, we definitely have a point where prohibition becomes so much of an impingement upon us that we have to break loose from it hmm. and go find another set of rules that make us feel pleasure better, you know, more, more pleasure than discomfort. And so you can impinge upon a person and prohibit a person only to a point before they're going to rebel against you. And then they're just going to go looking for a better set of rules. Well, it's another kind of death and resurrection, isn't it? But but the resurrection yeah. is kind of, um, you know, a halfway. It's kind of a zombie form. <laughs> well, especially with the advent of the internet, it it opens up space for us to discover that, you know what, Buddhists actually believe the same thing that we do when it comes to morality. Yeah, referring to your neighbor, right? Right, or Islam does discipline better than we do. Like, Mm -hmm. Islam does morality better than we do. Uh, Buddhism does love better than we do, so forth and so on. And once that's opened up to people where they can see that it's not just a choice between what kind of Christian do you want to choose from, but rather, wait a minute, these other religions basically teach the same thing that I've been taught, but they just seem to do it better than we do. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go check that religion out. 
We saw that in the 60s. That's the challenge with uh, missions in general, whether it's domestic or you know international, you know evangelism, whatever you want to call it, right. is that uh, that we want to run it pragmatically. You know, yeah. So here's a here's a program, and here's a successful result, and let's see if we can get there. Yeah. And if it doesn't work, then try a different program. Try to. We're always in search of some way to get that result that we're hoping for, right, which exactly. may or may not have the word of God behind it, as far as a promise, right? And I think that's the root is when you don't trust God's word to do its work, mm. his work, actually, then you supplement it. It's it's God's word plus our efforts. Well, and our expectations are often, um, I think, for something quite different than, than right. what his church would look like. I think we've talked about this before in regards to, um, you know, a church that would be in Luther's terms, with Heidelberg, uh, pick up Heidelberg translation, right, from Higher Things. There you go, from uh-huh. Higher Things. Uh, theology of glory, theology of the cross, that a church that's right. under the cross is going to have people who are in pain and suffering, who right. are spiritually, you know, challenged, disturbed, that uh, have broken families. I mean, it's not right. the perfect, you know, idealistic kind of vision of the church. and um, it, But it's one that's gathered by by the preaching of, of God's word and in, in Right. Well, specifically the death of Christ for forgiveness. Well, here's a question, too, and I'm thinking out loud again, but mm-hmm. what then is the point That's of sending missionaries? Mission- isn't it? <laughs> yes, true. What is the point of sending missionaries to where there's already missionaries? Because mm. it, be it may be a mission outpost or a mission base, but if you're doing, quote-unquote, missionary work where there's already people who have established a mission base and there's already people then evangelizing the community – um, versus going somewhere where there's no mission base, there's no mm. missionary presence, like in Iran, for example, um, or other places. Because to your point then, if the gospel thrives in crisis, and historically we see this happening over and over again, then w- why do we send missionaries where there's already, again, comfort? Right. right. There's not There's not a, a lot of overhead to, to worry about because you've already established your presence. One, we, we presume that we're the only ones that are preaching comfort. Right, so so right. we have kind of this elitist kind of uh, viewpoint, uh, and and maybe maybe we're the most faithful uh, overall. Who knows? Um, I mean, I hope so. <laughs> uh, you know, I think the Lutheran Confession. I believe the Lutheran Confession. I actually vowed to like uphold it or something like that. Yeah, right? I think we did. You and I both. Yeah, said we did that. Like and, that. Con- and our congregations have too. Um, but in practice, you know, whether that word of God is actually being taught according to our confessions faithfully, right. uh, that's probably more of a, a gambit, a little bit of a hidden messenger. So that's part of the challenge. Um, but we do have that kind of elitist thing that we're, we think we're doing it right, and we're, and we're going to do it better. And so even right. if you're already there, we're going to come in next door, kind of like um, kind of like the hardware stores. You ever notice where there's, sure. there's a Lowe's and then there's a Home Depot? And then there's a Menards within <laughs> like right. you know two miles of each other, right? Like or even next door. Like, why would you do that? Well, we know <laughs> you're going to go to Home Depot and you're not going to find the thing you're looking for. And if we're next door, you're going to come next door and then you're going to buy something else, right? Sure. And we got your business, right? As long as we can do it bigger and better, then maybe you'll just stop going there all entirely because you don't like orange, you know, and it's too orange there, <laughs> right? Exactly, <laughs> or whatever, you know? right? No, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. No, it's just, it's a thought puzzle. I've, I've chewed on it. I, like I said, since I was a missionary, I've always chewed on that because the way I, that I went into the mission field was very blind and naive. Yeah. And because I, w- I wasn't even really a quote unquote Christian <laughs> at that point. I was just trying to figure out what I believed and I ended up going. And then coming into the LCMS where it's a very structured, organized form of mission and 
Yeah, it's just it's, and then I know I have friends in the Assemblies of God and the way that they do missionary work and right. talking with Roman Catholic monks and and I stayed with them in Guatemala for a month and seeing how they did mission post Vatican II and then talking about talking with them about how it was done pre Vatican II. I mean, there, there's there's a positive and a negative. One, you can be very you know intentional as far as targeting particular demographics or cultures mm-hmm. or people. Um, you know, and probably because of your own particular strengths, right? Uh, right? You can identify with them or they can identify with you. So you can build a trust relationship. And so that, you know, and that's worth exploiting, I think, or, or taking advantage of um, in that regard. But on the flip side, you know, we do, you know, like a German Lutheran church, we go, we try to find people that are German Lutheran, right? And right. at the exclusion of others um, who we might be perfectly capable of speaking with, but we yeah, exclude right. that because they're not our people. They're not suburban enough, or they're not high enough class. So they might—they don't have enough wealth to support the church, and, and all these kind of different ways to just um, try to make the system work, and missing the point that it's really supposed to be about the gospel for those yeah. who need to hear, right? Right, which, which would be everybody. Mm, yeah, yeah. So let's dive into Oberg. That was our, our long, long excursion. Was really. We began with an excursus, I guess. Yeah, it's a setup. Oh, it's a setup. There you go. Sure, why not? Call it what you will. <laughs> That's right. Thanks for hanging with us for this uh, 40 minutes. That's right. That's right. We're going to start on page 174 of Oberg. This is published by CPH, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Of course it is. Yeah. Klaus Detlef Schultz actually wrote a blurb on the back endorsing nice. this book. There you go. Um, so yeah, page rehabilitate the reformer in missiological studies. There you go. Page 174. Luther speaks not only about how, according to Joel 228 and following Romans 12, seven, first Corinthians 12, six, and here in acts two sixteen, the spirit sets the tongues of believers in motion and the priesthood of all believers to work. So that's the first reference point and the most important point, which is we locate mission work solidly in the third article of the creed. Yeah. This is a work of the spirit. It's a matter of election. Now, on the basis of Peter's sermon in Acts 2.14, 22, and 32, Luther writes of how Peter, the other apostles, and their followers in the ministry of preaching, supported by the same Holy Spirit, will preach a two-edged word in the world. The apostles' public preaching of the word, gospel, and their definitions and defense of the fundamentals of the Christian faith are relevant for all peoples on earth in all times. Furthermore, just as the people had gathered in Jerusalem after journeying there from all peoples and were able to hear the enthusiastic testimony in all languages, so the preaching of the church and of mission in all times ought to be characterized by Pentecost. That is, it ought to have an indisputable universal vector. Mm-hmm. Luther also says something about the structure of Peter's first Pentecost sermon. From his comments on Peter's sermon, one can understand how important the theme of law, gospel, repentance, forgiveness of sins is for Luther. All mission and evangelization must be characterized by a double word, a word that reveals sins to the sinner and a word that preaches the forgiveness of sins. Yeah, if that's not uh, a Lutheran theology of preaching, I don't know what is. Right. Well, and here's the thing, too, to think about is when you talk with people who have no word for sin, for example, yeah, you have to teach them what you're talking about. Yeah. And even more importantly, maybe, <laughs> they don't have a word for it. You uh, Do you know their language? Hmm. Do you speak the language? Do you, if, if they don't have a word for sin, 
you know, do you speak the language well enough that you can actually invent a word for sin? Yeah, it's kind or, of like uh, from my Chinese friend uh, from seminary, uh, yeah. the word for Noah, that's a proper right. name. So how do you right. create that out of Chinese characters? Well, mm-hmm. something like uh, boat, water, and I can't remember what the third mm-hmm. third part of the character was, right? They create yeah. this, I don't know how you would pronounce it, but but it was Noah. <laughs> but, you know, it was a boat arc, and maybe it was a rainbow. I don't know. So we have to create something like for sin. Hmm. And, and that's the thing, too, is as a missionary, you have to also be creative. You have to be, you have to have the imagination because not only are you working linguistically, grammatically with these people, but in many cases, if they've not had previous encounters with Christians, is the Bible even translated into their language? Well, and that's probably also true even in our own context. I mean, any of these words, law, gospel, repentance, forgiveness, sins, mission, evangelism, these words are, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it, churchy words. Right. And many of us think we know what they are. Uh, We really don't. I mean, I had a former pastor, um, his son uh, asked me recently, you know, pastor, what's the distinction between grace and mercy? And we put them together, but they don't mean the same thing, right? And I thought it was kind of amazing, right? Been in the church yeah. a long time. And, you know, for whatever reason, it clicked that, oh, maybe those words aren't exactly the same, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, don't assume that we all understand even what that word sin means, right? Yeah, exactly. Or what forgiveness looks like or, or what it entails. Right. Yeah. And that's a good point because I've talked about this a lot before. That when I came back to the United States after living in Mexico and not really speaking very much English for almost a year, communicating with people in English again, mm-hmm. I, I appreciated how little we actually uh, understand each other when we talk. Mm-hmm. Because we're using the words, like you said, but we're we're using them with different definitions. And so we end up talking past each other a lot of times, and we mistake that for having a conversation. Well, and our our expression in the moment is probably conditioned by the context of what's happening in our life or whatnot. Right. And exactly. if we went back and listened to that same conversation later or what we wrote, it would be I it really, like, what was I saying? I don't even understand right. my own words because right. you lack the immediate context of them, you know, everything you brought to it. Very much so. Hmm. So this is the key point then, that all mission and evangelism, evangelization, is characterized by a double word. It reveals sin, and then it forgives the sin. That's kind of the point. So one notices in Luther's exposition of Acts 2.16 and 32, how powerfully he assigns responsibility for killing God's Messiah to the Jewish leaders, though sometimes he speaks of all people. Right. (laughs) That humans should be revealed as sinners is so important for Luther, because they are in fact sinners in God's eyes. With this punishing word, God's spirit will drive sinners to regret in their hearts and conscience. Yeah, and that's the point in Peter's sermon is that sin is very precisely defined as you crucified your Lord, right? right. And referring to talking to people who had been there for 50 days and who had been there during yeah. Holy Week and had seen him crucified. And probably right, exactly. some of them, if, if not many of them, had cried out, crucify him, right? Right, exactly. So so he could say it very, very poignantly <laughs> and uh, precisely to them. But but he does define it for them. He's not just speak mm-hmm. in abstraction. He's speaking yeah. uh, in, with precision. How to win friends and influence people? Yeah, no, no, no. you killed God. Yeah, Mister uh, Carnegie or Carnegie, however you want to pronounce it, wasn't uh, wouldn't be happy with that. Exactly. Mm. So in the middle of Pentecost, and for a moment, the word preaches law and disaster and grief. But this is not the sum of Peter's preaching and the preaching of later times. 
Above all, the apostolic word is a preaching about Christ's cross and Christ's resurrection. Its task is to reveal the mystery of Christ, the secret of unconditional grace. The word and the spirit will first grant grace and the forgiveness of sins to all those who repent, receive the gospel, and are baptized in Christ's name. Repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. Yeah. Believe and be baptized. What must we do to be saved? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Actually, don't really do anything. Be yeah. believing, right? <laughs> yeah, be believing, exactly. And be baptized. So the mission message of Pentecost is really the same as has been seen above in connection with Luke twenty four forty seven, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Luke twenty four forty seven, I think is yeah, twenty four forty seven. Yeah, there it is. Luther notices this connection directly in his work on Peter's Pentecost sermon and Acts chapter two. The preaching at Pentecost creates both a Pentecost anxiety and a Pentecost joy. The Reformer can even say that Peter's Pentecost sermon is a paradigm for all subsequent preaching of mission and church. Well, at, least, at least it was on that day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. On that day, it was a paradigm. Yeah. Um, even 10 years later, talking to Paul, um, Peter's not kind, of, kind of lost right, exactly. sight of his yeah, original day. mission. <laughs> well, this is important, too. Uh, I made a note of this at the time when I was reading this, is that there are, there are eight model sermons and acts, so to speak, eight model sermons. There's eight sermons and acts. Officially speaking. Mm -hmm. And each one of those sermons is preached in a completely different context. Mm. You have Paul preaching on Mars Hill. You have Philip preaching to the Ethiopian. I mean, there's different, or yeah, there's different places and times when the gospel is preached in such a way that now all of a sudden it's not, oh, you guys killed Jesus. (laughs) You killed God. Now believe the good news and be baptized. But later on, it's this Jesus who you don't know is God. Mm. And so the, and as I've said before, in almost all those cases, the sermon topic was given to them by the crowds. Again, the, the crowd asked Peter what's going on. Yeah. Philip is asked by the Ethiopian eunuch. Peter is summoned to Cornelius' house. Right. And Paul is, again, having conversations with the philosophers. And the 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 way in which you preach then comes out of the conversation that's happening. Can you imagine that sermon? I was thinking about it yesterday, uh, listening to Sam Harris of all yeah. people, and I thought, oh, this would be like going to one of those events where, you, except you'd have like Sam Harris and uh, your friend Joe Rogan, and maybe you would have uh, Jordan Peterson. You would have all, you know what do they call it? What are they guys called? Uh, the the that group of thinkers, right? The intellectual dark web. That's it. Yeah. So you'd have the whole intellectual dark web. I can't remember all those people's name. And they, they'd be sitting and then Paul sits down and they're all going to discuss. Right. Um, <laughs> they're going to discuss matters of faith and religion and, and just, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and that, I mean, that, that would be a totally different conversation than what either you or I could have with most right. of the people in our parishes, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It would be a very different kind of sermon. Well, I think Paul would wait to go last. That's the thing. Mm. He would listen just to listen. everybody yeah, just listen. and then go last and say, okay, I've listened to everything that you've heard. I understand your philosophy. I understand where you're coming from. So let me take all that. I know we're worried about AI. It's I, right. Yeah, they might take over the world. <laughs> <laughs> but let me tell you. And then he would jump off and use that to talk about right. Jesus right. somehow. Somehow. Yeah, and well, and that's a key point too. Is when I, especially in Central America, when you encounter people who try to recover their Mayan heritage and they worship the corn goddess hmm. and and stuff and some such things. One, you have a history of Roman Catholicity there, 
so that's you always have to contend with Roman Catholic theology. It's cultural. It's contextualized, especially liberation theology. Um, but then you also have pagan uh, pagan theology, pagan worship, and tribal worship. You know, animism to a certain. Uh, and so you have to take all that into account. You can't just dismiss it and say, "Well, those aren't real gods," hmm. or "That's not true theology." You you have to figure out in some way how to have a conversation with this person or these people about what they believe, and not in a condemnatory way, and and not prove your thesis by way of negating their thesis yeah because if you undermine everything that they hold on to right i mean that that kind of annihilation of of, of their person i mean it annihilates right. their whole person right, right. and so then uh, they're, they're left with nothing whereas um like we were talking about earlier with regards to buddha for example um, yeah. that that if we can talk to a buddhist about love and how now look i mean we do have some common it's earthly wisdom, but we have this common ground in regards to right. trying to... The golden to, rule is still the golden rule. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> and let, So build on that and, right. and show how uh, perhaps Christ is more satisfying um, an answer right. to, to their actual dilemmas that they're trying to struggle with. Right. Well, yeah, it's like, it's like living with a tribe that believes that they have to sacrifice twice a year to their god because he's a death god. Hmm. God of war, he's a death god, god of the volcano. And so you ask them... Joe versus point, a volcano, right? Right, exactly. You ask the, the chieftain of the shaman at a certain time, how many sacrifices will it take to satisfy your god? How many, how many is enough? Mm. And they'll say, we don't know. Because it's contextual, right? It's situational. Mm-hmm. Right. But we know we have to do this at least twice a year. And so you say, well, the god that I believe in, the god that I worship, um, he doesn't require any sacrifices because he sacrificed himself for all of us. Yeah. For this very reason, so that you never have to do this again. That's a whole different conversation now, all of a sudden, because you're asking this person, <coughs> excuse me, you have to keep offering these blood sacrifices, and yet your God never seems to be satisfied. So how do you even know when the you know, when it's enough? Yeah, and you've been given a whole, as Christians, we've been given a whole set of language from Leviticus and Hebrews, especially, right? right? Exactly, to talk <laughs> that, about sacrifice. That we can talk to somebody about sacrifices. And, right. Yeah, exactly. And, and like you said, we have a whole language coming out of the New Testament in particular about the love of God and Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So we can talk about love in a general way. We can talk about love in a human way. And we can all agree that love is the purpose and goal of life. Mm-hmm. And then work backwards into, okay, so if love is the purpose and goal of life, then how do you know if you're loving the right way? Yeah. Well, you have to love selflessly and you have to not be attached and you and so forth. And it's like, well, but that's impossible. Well, then the pursuit of life is to become unattached. Well, that seems rather selfish versus being selfless. Yeah, I mean, that, that goes against the poet, right? Who said everybody needs somebody to love. Right, exactly. You got to serve somebody. <laughs> and so have a conversation about love, but but ask the question, is it really possible to be selfless in your loving and the answer is no, of course it's not. Mm-mm. And so you can strive your whole life to be selfless and you're going to die selfish. Mm-hmm. And so really, are you just trying to do as much as you can before you die and the hopes of gaining some sort of spiritual consciousness mm. or higher consciousness or evolving into some sort of enlightened bodhisattva being versus, yeah, God loves you just the way you are. He delights in you as Psalm 18, or yeah, Psalm 18 said, what is it? Psalm, yeah. No, Psalm 18, Psalm 18. Delight in our life, delight in all the gifts that he gives us in this life, whether, you know, family, right. friends, church, of course, um, but, you know, all of creation is a blessing to us, and, right. and, and to enjoy, and to, to treasure, and to um, um, to care for, you know, which is also, right. uh, blesses us too. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like, you're, 
It's like watching people follow breadcrumbs through the woods mm. and you've got GPS. <laughs> and all you're saying is, honestly, you can, you can keep fo- trying to follow the breadcrumbs or I can just take you there. Yeah. You know, it's your choice. It's, I, know, uh, you I know. know the straight way here. Right, exactly. No, the narrow path. <laughs> and so being open to the conversation and recognizing that the other person has a breadcrumb of truth mm. and not to be so arrogant as to assume that you have the whole truth and nothing but the truth, but rather recognize that you don't know anything more or less than they do other than you do believe that Jesus is, the, is exactly who the Bible claims he is. Yeah, other than what has been revealed to you. In this right, scripture. exactly. That's it. But yeah, I think often, too often, we get full. You know, we get we feel ourselves, and we think, "Well, I'm going to go. I'm going to go over there, and I'm going to tell these people the way it is, and I'll preach the love of God, Jesus, to them, and they're going to convert, and they're going to come to church." Well, and I think part of it too is the the word that we that we need to hear as converted Christians um, is different than those who right. are who aren't. I mean, one, we're naive. We're we're converted, yes, but <laughs> remain sinners. So. Um, Maybe if we were aware of that of our of our own nature, uh, we might be more sensitive to the fact that people need to hear grace and mercy. They need to hear words of peace. They need to hear their sins forgiven daily, regularly. Um, maybe more so than sometimes Christians are are um, think would be necessary because we're kind of caught up in our in our own piety and our own righteousness. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Hmm. So in connection, Ober continues with Peter's Pentecost sermon and Acts two twenty one. One important theme of the Reformer ought to be observed. Hmm. This reoccurring theme in Luther's writings is that the Christian daily prays for forgiveness and believes in God's promises of grace. But Luther categorically rejects the idea that without the preaching of the word, one might attain a saving faith by means of mystical prayer or meritorious works. Well, there you go, your piety. In fact, those are the two ways, classically, that you uh, get love from God or the divine being. You pray and wait for it to fill you, or you go out and work in such a way that it, it comes to you. Yeah, and we see this uh, in mission work uh, at some times where, where someone will, will be sent, they will found a congregation, they'll gather some people, and then they'll leave, right? Yes. They, they've got a building, and they've got the Word of God there, and maybe you even trained a pastor of some sort, but, but they're abandoned, and what do they fall back to? Where do they, what, what kind of uh, faith do they fall back to? Uh, one of works and you know whatever their culture is if it's animism or or some kind of mystical power they just fall back or they bring that in uh, to fill the building so to speak exactly Mm -hmm. and so this is the key point then that Ober points out is that what we pray for daily is for forgiveness Mm. and the belief in God's promises of grace because as I said it's easy to feel ourselves and like you said get caught up in our own Mm. parochialism you know and forget that we don't know anything more than anybody else does other than what's been revealed to us in the scriptures about Jesus. And so before we get a full head and decide, well, I know more about love than you do because I'm a Christian, or I know a lot more about prayer than you do because I'm a Christian, or I know more about the right kinds of religious works that please God because I'm a Christian. No, you don't. Mm. <laughs> no, you don't. Um, every religion has teachings that cover these topics, and every religion thinks that they got the right, they got it figured out. The only thing that distinguishes us from anybody else is Jesus. Yeah, and the work of the Spirit. His Spirit. The Spirit. Yeah, mm-hmm. His Spirit, exactly. So, therefore, the Reformer integrates the preaching of the Word, calling on the name of the Lord in faith. Acts 2.21 and Romans 10.13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Promise. Mm-hmm. 
Romans 10, 14 through 15 and 17. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. Yeah, I like that. Uh, it's almost like a logic uh, logic train, right? Yes, <laughs> from right. Just step one, step two. In order for the word to, uh, to get to you, all of these things, according to Christ's own institution, need to be in place, right? Right. That's a preacher preaching, <laughs> and you with ears hearing, right? Right. Well, and that's a key point, too, is that the gospel is not disembodied. Mm-mm. It, it has a preacher. It has an instrument through which it is spoken. Mm-hmm. And the message is delivered by a preacher. Mm-hmm. And there's a sending. And there's a sending, too. Right. Right. Or, or right, ordaining there is a sending. or a, a, yeah, a designating. Yeah. Ascending out. Mm-hmm. Those little apostoloses, yeah. apostoli. And so, yeah, how, how is anyone supposed to hear if they don't have a preacher, but if they don't hear, they can't believe? And this is all for the purpose of calling on the name of the Lord to be saved. Exactly. Yeah. So, Luther means that, that then, Luther means then that salvation is won through a faith that has been created by preaching the word, the gospel. It is received not by the one who, in some kind of inwardness, leaves preaching behind as the enthusiasts do, the Holy Spirit works instrumentally, that is, through the means that God has appointed for the communication of the gospel, grace, and forgiveness. So there you go. Mm -hmm. Luther says expressly that the work of God's reign is a missio corporalis. Mm -hmm. It is obvious from this statement that Luther defends an ecclesial Christianity and mission. Ecclesial, I like that. Wherever Christ and the Spirit work through the means of grace and their servants, salvation can never be reduced to some kind of spiritual inwardness. Yeah. So you you can uh, be what? Religious. Or no, faithful, but not religious. Or how does it go? Spiritual. Spiritual, but not religious, right? right? Just an inward right. kind of faith. Um, right. But so also, you know, we have the flip side where people say, well, we are the church because we're here. We're gathered together. Yes. and they, But yet without faith, is right. it the church? I was going to say, there's corporate inwardness and there's individual existential inwardness. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. But it's still inwardness. No, but ecclesial uh, Christianity are people gathered around Christ, right? To hear him and to receive from him. Yes, right. So Luther claims this precisely in connection with the text in Acts 2 about the Holy Spirit and mission. Luther's reasoning about how grace is communicated through the word and sacraments in the hands of God's servants shows in a clear way that the Reformer does not disregard the human factor in the work of mission. Missio Dei takes people into its service. The mission of God takes people into his service. The main accent remains, however, on the church-creating work of the word and the sacraments. There you go. Yeah. And this is a key point, even in the Old Testament, then, when Oberg draws on Luther's Old Testament exegesis, is that really the Missio Dei is nothing more than the drive of God in history to bring us to salvation. Mm, okay. That's all it is. Yeah. That the Missio Dei is, from Genesis 3 to the last day, I gotta get you to the cross. Like that's the direction of all history is the cross. Yeah, I've heard it called like uh, the golden thread. Or, yeah, sure. You know, but but it it does change the way that you would read the Old Testament narrative too. That Very much so, if right. you see if you see all history um, being or all of creation being bent towards that purpose, right? You know, that that the one that the uh, <laughs> that the promise would be um, and the promised people would be preserved for the sake of the Savior. You know, right? Something exactly. Like that. Yeah. And so the main accent remains on the church creating work of word and sacraments, which cannot be covered enough. 
the church is created by the word of God and the sacraments. And that's people it. are there, but the, the, the hands of the servants are, as we said, instrumental, right? Right. They, they're used by God, right. um, but it's the word, it's sacraments, the spirit working in those that right. accomplish. Um, right, exactly. You can't just throw a Bible and the bread and the wine up on the altar and leave. Yeah. <laughs> and go, don't worry, it'll take care of itself. It doesn't work that way. Mm. It's not an ecstatic religion. Let's put it that way. And it doesn't, and this is the key point, is that, again, the church and the gospel and the work of God, the Missio Dei, is a concrete reality. It's real. And historically speaking, it's that the church is supposed to be the place you can go to and have reality revealed to you in all of its stark contrasts. Versus not, you know, versus going to church and having your perception of that reality hmm. readministered to you week after week after week. This is the way it's going to be. This is the way it has to be because this is the way that we see it. You're supposed to go into the church. If it's a law of gospel preacher, if it's a law of gospel church, then the reality of the situation will be revealed to you. This is who you actually are in hmm. reality. You're yeah. a sinner. And this is what that means to be a sinner. Likewise, then, here's the gospel. And here's the concrete historical reality of Jesus' death and resurrection for you. Yeah. That they both have to be there. We don't often, I mean, at least I don't, um, like enumerating, you know, a list of sins. It's kind of like Paul in a, which I don't remember which epistle it is, you know, where he lists the whole list of vices. And then he says, well, these, these ought not be named among you. Which I right. always think it's kind of ironic since we just named them all. Uh, yes, exactly. Did you read this out loud? I didn't mean for you to read it. Oh, out sorry. <laughs> Oopsie. But um, but in, but another way. I mean, there to to say that you are a sinner in kind of a generic sense, or not an abstract sense, but referring to someone's character, right, or their their well, nature. It's a noun. It's an abstract noun. Like mm-hmm. God is an abstract noun. Yeah, but to not talk specifically uh, how that sin breaks out. Right, exactly. I was going to say that. For me as a pastor, I speak expositionally about how sin busts loose Mm -hmm. and name the specificness of it. For example, um, a drug overdose because of prescription medications or teen suicide or a miscarriage or whatever it may be, that these are very real concrete ways in which sin breaks loose in a person's life. Mm -hmm. And rather than just say, hey, you're all sinners, you're all selfish. And I will do that. But rather, I try and focus on the specificity. Yeah, and some, and they're not all the same. It's, oh, I think it's easy to kind of just preach the law in, in a way of guilt, you know, the things you've said, Ugh. thought, and done, right? As if that's the law, yeah. As if that's the law, uh, rather than recognize, no, sin breaks out in other ways. I mean, we have, um, you know, the, the corruption of creation, right, with the thorns right, and exactly. thistles and whatnot. Yeah. We, have, we have death, obviously, yeah. uh, in the various ways that people die. Um, and then, or, or the ways that they kill themselves, even just the, or just the anxieties and, and resentments and regrets that we have mm-hmm. daily in our life, and the ways that that, we, that that we're brought into shame, right? Right, exactly. Not exactly. necessarily for our own actions or thoughts, even or words, um, no. but for what's done to us. Right, exactly. No, it's a it's a multitude, and as Paul points out, that when sin gets a hold of the commandments, it increases sin beyond all measure, hmm. or is it vice versa? When the law comes, it increases sin beyond all measure. Yeah. I didn't know That's what it. I didn't I didn't know I didn't what coveting was. I didn't know what coveting was until <laughs> yeah. Somebody told me about it, and I covered all the time. Exactly. It's, like, it's funny how that works. Yeah, it's like mm, always careful about what things I teach to my children. <laughs> right, <laughs> as exactly. far as vices and you know. Uh, no, that's a great point. Do I really want to give them an idea of how to do? That? Mm, no, let's not talk right. about that. Well, and then, especially in regards to missionary work, if you're going in, into mm. a foreign culture, an alien culture, uh, things that you call sin may be considered virtues by them. 
they might be considered positive. So again, you have to be careful on how you phrase and how you describe sin and how you enumerate sin. Because just to point at something and go, that's a sin. Like I said, within the case of polygamy, yeah. you point at polygamy and go, that's a sin. Well, it can get you thrown off a cliff. Yeah. And then who's the preacher? <laughs> so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Well, in our culture, it's uh, viewed as almost abusive to try to like negotiate and haggle a price right at a store. And then you, go, so. you go in other cultures and it's... It's, it's not, an insult if you don't. It's an insult if you don't. Yeah, it's like you don't value my product because you're not actually, um, you know, trying right. to get it from me. You know. Oh yeah, no. Yeah. My Mexican mom has friends like that. They own shops, mm. and if you don't hang out with them, they'll argue with you all the way out to the car mm. yeah. to get you to argue with them. About, they're like, no, 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 no. I, I insist it has to be this price. And right. Like, I'll pay full price. They're like, no, no, you must pay. It's like, honey, oh, oh I get it. You want me to negotiate with you? Oh, well, and that's it. the okay. thing. That's the thing with vi- what we call vices. They're not always sinful, right? Right. <laughs> uh, right. They they may lead to sin or, or um, you know uh, bring one into some kind of corruption. But, sure. Yeah. But uh, maybe not in a, in like an explicit way, right? That it's sinful. Well, we have to be careful again because virtue and vice are philosophical categories. Mm, They're not theological categories. And we want to make like faith, love, and hope theological virtues, Mm -hmm. which is a Roman Catholic thing. It's a Thomas Aquinas kind of thing. (laughs) Um, Obviously, predates Thomas Aquinas. Don't you know? Don't crucify me in the comments for saying that. But Thomas Aquinas writes a lot about the theological virtues. That's what reminded me of it. But um, they're not theological virtues because that's not what they're there for. Faith, hope, and love are synonyms for Jesus. Well, and if they're philosophical categories. Then you then you have to define them very precisely, right? Right, and and say this is exactly what love looks like, right? And the the multitude of ways that love, you know, that that love for your neighbor, or service for your neighbor looks. Uh, right. You mean love the way that Plato lays out love, or love the way that Cicero lays out love? Right. Exactly. You know which which philosophical tradition are you buying into when it comes to this whole matter of love? And so, yeah, we again we throw around these words as if they're. They're in the Bible, for so to speak, <laughs> yeah, or they're canon. And you're like, you do realize the word virtue, not really there in the way that you're using it. So you should probably be a little bit more careful about that. Because when you start calling things sins, you should probably be careful. Right. <laughs> Likewise, then, when you're preaching the law in its fullness, don't be like a, uh, a Jewish mother-in-law who makes you feel guilty. <laughs> hmm. But preach the fullness of the law. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you can preach the fullness of the gospel. Okay. So, in his, where are we at here? Main accents, church-creating work. Luther in his later comments. Yeah. Luther in his later comments on Acts chapter 2 also often discusses sanctification. Dun, dun, dun. Uh Uh-oh. Sanctification. The Lutheran bugaboo. Landmine. Here. Right. He he refers here to John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. Where the spirit of Pentecost, preaching, and faith exists, there the individual and the church are sanctified. Wait, where's the thing about how we have to do works? Where's that at? Oops. Sarcasm. Uh, sanctification, according to John 14, 23, is if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. That word for obey in Greek is actually to hear, yeah. to listen yeah, it's, to. Uh, what is that? Tereo? To hold fast? Tereo. Yeah, to hold fast, to mm-hmm. listen. I, the, uh, again, of all, other than perfect, the word the, that we translate tetelestai is perfect, mm. uh, and by we I mean the Reformed. Right. The, word, the word for listen that is translated as obey has got to be one of the most criminal acts of translation committed in the English language. But they don't translate it when Mary, when it's referred to, uh, Mary's referred to as tereoing the word, right? Right, exactly. She, she holds those words, treasures them in her heart, and you're like, yeah. Um, 
so why do you tra- why do you translate it that way in your beloved Luke chapter two? Right, exactly. <laughs> but but elsewhere, it's point. obey. Yeah. Right, you must obey because that's the point of again the point of the commandments is obey, obey God and obey your neighbor. Wait, no, that's not it. <laughs> there is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. obey. That's right, I remember that song. If anyone loves me, he will listen to my teaching. Mm-hmm. Where the spirit of Pentecost, preaching and faith exists, there the individual and the church are sanctified. So what is sanctification? What is holiness? The spirit, the proclamation of the gospel, and therefore faith. Great. Again, third yeah. article of the creed, baby. Mm-hmm. And in the large catechism, Luther explains why is the Holy Spirit called the Holy Spirit? Because the spirit of Christ, the spirit of God makes holy people. Look at that. Through the preaching of the gospel, which creates faith Hmm. pretty simple so therefore if there is a church that exists and the word and sacraments are there then the spirit is there preaching through his preacher and creating faith yeah and the way that that happens uh jesus likens to like say a refiner's fire right yes yeah so there is dross i mean there's stuff there's for sure you've got (laughs) hang-ups uh and that gets burnt away you know and that's and that's mm, that's difficult. That's challenging. That's painful at times. Well, and the thing is, we've talked about before, too, is we're more than happy to have God take away the things that we don't like about ourselves, Or, or don't people. like about our church or other people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But when it comes to the what we consider to be the best or the great thing aspects or areas of ourselves or other people, we're like, whoa, whoa, those can't... Again, those aren't vices. Those that's are not, virtues, right? That's something I really love. What, what are you talking about? Right. How could, how could something that I'm so great at be a, a hurdle <laughs> to salvation? Right. Well, start with the word I... And then mm. work backwards from there. Yeah. Remember when you uh, put it in the mold and you turned it into gold? Yeah. Right, exactly. It was a golden statue that you put in the corner. Dun, yeah. dun, dun. Oops. So, spirit, preaching, faith. That person is sanctified. But the reformer rejects any hope of a perfect sanctification within time. Christians in themselves are peccatores. They are sinful. They are selfish. They are curved in on themselves. And the church in itself is peccatorix. But in church, but in Christ, they are holy. Exactly. How do, you, how do you translate that? The second part. Peccatoris is uh, Peccatrix. Peccatrix. Full of sin? No. Like master, like the most sinful? Hmm. I'm trying to think of another Latin term that ends in X that isn't dominatrix. It's the only, <laughs> that's the only thing I can think of off the top of my head. Uh, Peccatrix. Domi- like what is, hmm. what is the, again, you're, you're more grounded in classical education than i am what no you know more latin than i do oh don't do that to me uh well regardless it, it is interesting because there he goes any hope of perfect sanctification or i would say complete sanctification too right i mean right. you can say it that way is that going to happen within time no 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 but but they are they are holy because they are in christ and so that's through declaration right Right, it's, it's the, the suffix tricks is added to a verb to create a third declension feminine form of an agent noun. Done. Yeah, that's helpful. Thanks. I, I was going to say, I I totally understand it. All right. right, all you really smart listeners or classically trained listeners, right. there are people right now throwing <laughs> their phone out the window of their car as they're driving. Oh, these novices! Look at them. <laughs> what? I can't believe you people are pastors. See, this, did, but this is what happens. Nobody in your nobody in your congregation cares that you speak Latin. No, no. <laughs> or you can read it. And this so is what entropy looks like, children. It exactly. Oh my goodness! If you if you had met uh, our predecessors in 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 the church, huh? Yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. They would be ashamed of us. They would be. 
So there it is, that the Christian in himself is a sin, is a sinner, but the church in itself is, well, sinful as well. Sinful writ large, let's just say. Mm-hmm. But lower in Christ, KC, right? Not big KC. Yeah, lowercase c. But in Christ, they are holy. I guess, to clarify, we would actually refer to it as the church militant versus the church triumphant. Yeah, that's a good way to That the reason it's church militant is because we're in a sinful world and the church is full of sinners. Mm-hmm. But in Christ, the church and everybody that makes up the church is holy. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Therefore, the life I lead now, I live by faith in the one who gave himself for me. Is there a bird in your garage? I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. It's something <laughs> with wings and it's batting around. There, there's wildlife in Pastor Gillespie's garage while we're recording this. I know. Well, I got the windows open, so who knows? There you go. For Luther's view of mission, the interpretation of the drama in Cornelius' house recorded in Acts chapter 10, verse 34 and following is especially important. Acts 10, 44 through 46 is central. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. But normally you would get the Holy Spirit when you had that piece of foreskin cut off, right? Right. Oh, okay. Right. Not anymore. Hmm. Instead, he's attached himself to the word and the water, the promise and the water. Yeah, other flesh. Not not the promise or the water, but the promise and the water. Mm, Because the promised is in the water. Why do we always want to do that? We always want to separate God's word from its instrument, from its elements. Well, the water then becomes just, um, I don't know, some kind of indication or something nice. Right, it's a sign. Mm, A sign. Yeah. But it doesn't do anything. But it doesn't do anything, exactly. Therefore, right. God's word must not do anything either. Although I, re- I was reading a story about it. Uh, baptism, you know, it, it, it kills the old Adam, right? And then yeah, raises well, to new life. And does. New man in Christ. Right. Uh, uh, I don't remember where it was. I think somewhere down south. They were baptizing in a river. And the crocodile ate the pastor. Oops. Yep. So baptism kills. Uh, <laughs> baptism does kill. <laughs> That, that is that is an extreme form of daily contrition and repentance. <laughs> Isn't that something? I mean, of all the ways to go. I mean, you were performing a work, you know, the work of God, I suppose. Uh, yeah, you have that certainty going for you. He, he died doing what he loved. But if you're into signs, then... Uh, <laughs> That's not a good sign. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Although you and I are, well, you and I are probably going to get killed by crocodiles in our own church, so... Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. It's a different kind of crocodile, but... Mm. This text... Acts chapter 10. (laughs) Just (laughs) drop that without qualification and move on. This text is the transition from the outpouring of the Spirit on the circumcised to the preaching and outpouring of God's Spirit on uncircumcised heathen. The Jewish Christians were amazed that the heathen spoke in tongues and praised God. That is, they they, uh, spoke with all the churchly uh, language, right? Right, exactly. It's like, oh, I'm sanctified. Exactly. They started using big words. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all those Latinized, Latinized English words. <laughs> That's right. So Luther, Luther's few longer commentaries on this text harmonize well with his comments on Acts chapter 2. There is, however, not much here about the law gospel theme because the text does not directly actualize that problem. Hmm. On the basis of Acts chapter 10, verse 34 and 44, Luther's focus here is that the gospel of church mission from the beginning and through all times must be addressed to all people. Christ has died and is risen for all people, which, by the way, means you can't preach specific messages to specific groups of people because everybody hears the gospel differently. Mm, That's true. No, no. Mm. It's the same message for all people at all times in all places. Same gospel. And that's been a regular uh, challenge 
you know, for churches from the beginning. I, who is it? Uh, Irenaeus in particular, kind of. Right. He, he talks about, I mean, in like a colloquial way that we would say it is like repackaging the gospel, you know, adjusting, yeah. adjust, making it fit whatever your context right. is. Um, and uh, it is the gospel. You you preach it as it is. Yes, it's right. a. This is a first century Palestinian Jew who died right, right uh, upon a cross right, under, exactly. at the hand of Romans, um, with this you know instrument of torture that the, right. that they had come up with. Well, that they were really good at and yeah. This is the difference between preaching and apologetics, for example, mm, yeah. is that we can sit down and have a conversation about what we believe with someone who doesn't believe the same as us. But at some point in that conversation, at least for myself. I'm going to start proclaiming Jesus. Yeah. I'm going to switch from second-order discourse to first-order discourse. Yeah, specifically Good Friday Jesus, 2,000 years ago, guy. Right, exactly. Not some mystical, mythical, right. bigger-than-life character. Mm-hmm. And so that is the difference then, that mm-hmm. both the Jews and the heathens ought to have the opportunity to hear the message about Jesus. Yeah. The message of the church, the world, is a preaching about the Christ who is who in his life served God and people and through his death on the cross and resurrection won peace for people through his sacrifice of atonement and his victory over Satan, sin, and death. Yeah, it's a good summary. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the message of the church is this. Christ lived a life where he served God and people and through his death on the cross and his resurrection won peace for people through his sacrifice of atonement and his victory over Satan, sin, and death. Yeah. Right, that's enough. I mean, that that's probably a good fifty-two weeks worth of preaching, right there. Yeah, it's good. It's solid. It works for me. Probably pull it off. I like it. (laughs) The gospel of Christ will be preached for all people in all times, as long as the world exists, among the Jews, among the heathen, and in Europe. (laughs) I like that. Yeah, well, and Luther famously, uh, you know, quipped about the the Germans that if they yeah. stopped hearing the word of God, you know, uh, the spirit would move on from them like a passing rain shower. Yeah, which, exactly. Uh, I think I mean Luther nailed it. wasn't a prophet, but yeah, he nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> nailed it. It's fun because you go to churches in Europe and there, and uh, they'll show you around and be like, "Well, which church do you go to?" Ask the tour guide. Uh, I don't go to church. Right, I don't, I don't go, go to church. church. I'm just, I just work here. Yeah, I just. <laughs> Uh, this is just paycheck. So this means that all who believe the Son will receive the forgiveness of sin in his name. Mm. No other gospel may be preached by Christ's church. Galatians 1.8. Oof. No other gospel. So in, in Luther's words here, that presumes that, or, or in, at least in the paraphrase yeah. of Luther here, that there are other forms of good news, but they're not the good news, right? Right. Well, we would say, like, what we're talking about to refer backwards, if you preach a message of love at church, mm. nothing wrong with talking about love, Not nothing wrong with emphasizing love and kindness, love especially you, unconditional. <laughs> yeah, love you, man. But it ain't the gospel. It's the sum of the law, actually. Mm. The sum of the law is love God and love your neighbor. It's not gospel. Likewise, preaching about missions, preaching about outreach and evangelism, great, fantastic, not the gospel. Mm. Works of mercy, not the gospel. Mm. Lots of things sound great and are good to talk about, are good to be conscious of and reflect on, that are not the gospel. Right. And when we take the gospel for granted, or as uh, one of our fathers said, the gospel implied is the gospel denied, mm. is that if we're not rock solid on what the gospel is and isn't, and by the way, I'd also argue that what the law is and isn't. Right. Because with, without the law precisely defined, the gospel um, is not the response, Right. Right. Well, we would say the second use of the law is like a divining rod for the gospel, there almost. Go. Yeah. Right. That that's the purpose is to drive you to mirror you to drive the cross you to Christ, of Christ mm-hmm. to drive you to Christ. And so, 
you can't have one without the other. They're both the word of God. And so like, when the laws like love and spoke, marriage, right? Love and marriage. Dun, 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 meet George Jetson. <laughs> but the point being is that the gospel is the gospel mm-hmm. because it's the word, it's the word of God that has the power to save to all who believe Romans 1, 16, 17. And that salvation is in Christ and him alone. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so if that's not the message of the church, it's a church. It's just not the church. It's not the spirits worked out church. If we were going to say it crassly, we might say there's a, a gospel of empowerment. There's there's a gospel oh, of self-improvement. There's a gospel yeah, of uh, what? Of community gospel building. Gospel of love. There's a gospel of community building. There's a gospel of activism. There's a gospel Well, and even peace, of, right? You know. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, just give peace a chance. You know, let's get yeah. along. And, and that, that, no, there's lots of good news. Hmm. But is it Christ? Or did Christ have to die for it to even be true? Right, exactly. Can you can you talk about peace or love? Can you talk about obedience? Can you talk about discipline? Can you talk about prayer and and not talk about Jesus? Yeah, of course you can. Yeah. Because other religions do too. It might actually be the natural religion of our hearts. Right, exactly. And so, yeah, it, it pains us to give all of the work of salvation over to the Holy Spirit. Mm. <laughs> Because it means that we're not in control of, of how this all works out. And not only the work of um, salvation, but but the, the way that salvation is carried out into the world then, right? With missions. Yes. Even with our own local congregation, but then throughout the, uh, the church in the U.S., the church throughout the world, um, apart from that preaching, apart from that salvation in Christ alone and yeah. the work of the Spirit to proclaim that, it, there's nothing. <laughs> right. Exactly. There's nothing. And we can make a lot of something out of nothing. No, that's true. <laughs> I know people who have devoted their entire life <laughs> to nothing. Well, like we were talking about, like, go big or go home, right? So, like, it's just keep expanding the empire based on this um, house of cards. Eventually, it does get blown over. Right. right? Well, I think it was Ben Franklin who said mm-hmm. that many people die when they're 30, but they're not buried until they're 70. Yeah. What's he getting at? Meaning there are a lot of people who just exist. And I think, too, in a lot of ways, there's many churches that have existed for a long time and exist to this day, and yet you will not hear the gospel proclaimed there, and you will not receive it. It's been in their wheels, yeah, in a right. sense, right? The very successful churches, too. We, You and I both know churches that are extremely successful, popular, well-attended, uh, wealthy churches, and you will not hear a lick of gospel preached in those churches. And in a very earthly kind of sense, you know, lovely places. Yes, very much so. Right, I mean, with with strong sense of community and, and of unity, uh, and they're at peace with one another. Right. They care for one another. I mean, it looks like a very lovely place. But right. if you ask them, you know, why do you love one another like you do? What's going to be the answer? Right, exactly. And that's I think that's where the maybe where the rubber hits the road because the the idea of Christian mercy or love, like we see in Acts, uh, as part of our missionary endeavors, is then to um, always be prepared to make a defense, right, for the hope yeah. that's in us, to, to say, no, this is, I, I love you this much because Christ loves me this much. Right, right? exactly, exactly. You know, you, you are someone whom Jesus died for, and died for me, died for you. How can I not love you? Right. right? So to wrap this up then, both in his direct commentaries and in his reference to, the, to this text, Luther makes much of the fact that the oral preaching of Peter, Acts 10.44, proves itself capable to communicate the Holy Spirit to those who listen. Hmm. This is the same issue of oral preaching and faith that also has been seen in connection with Acts chapter 2, verse 21, Romans 10, verse 14, and Galatians 3, verse 2. 
oral preaching, the viva vox, the living, living, voice. Say, living voice of the gospel, the living mm-hmm. voice of the spirit, is a means of grace, according to Luther. That oral preaching is a means of grace because it is a living word. Meaning a means a means by which God communicates his favor towards us sinners. Yes, right? exactly. Okay. It is not only an informing word, it is also the primary instrument of mission, especially in pioneer mission work. Hmm. In the sense of a pioneer going out where there is nothing. <laughs> You're the first one out there. That the this is the only thing at the end of the day that distinguishes Christians from non-Christians is that the word that we preach, if it is the word of Christ, if it's the word of the Spirit, it is a living word, not a dead word. Yeah. It his is death, a, his cross, his resurrection, his right. sacrifice of atonement, his victory over sin, Satan. Exactly. Devil. These are concrete, real things. And the sacraments are concrete and real ways in which God communicates his favor and love toward us. In the present tense. And it's what it, is unique or peculiar to the Christian faith, right? Yes, exactly. And exactly, yeah. that's, I mean, that's ultimately then what matters. <laughs> if should be. At least where <laughs> you should be. put the emphasis, right? Is the, like, what's our, what is uniquely Christian about what you're saying? And if, if, it, if yeah. it isn't, <laughs> then you have to ask the question, do I need to be saying this? Or, or is this right. a secondary thing, right? Is this what it needs to be preached? Is this, is this a secondary matter? Or does it need to matter at all? Well, I mean, maybe it does. I, you know, if somebody is looking for, um, I don't know, what would they be looking for that would need it? <laughs> meaning. Yeah, Just meaning, meaning in purpose, general. Yeah. Um, motivation. I don't know. Something. But Whatever. Yeah, exactly. But it's, not it's specific to the personality. Mm-hmm. And like we were talking about in the beginning, it's, it's that corporate model of the church that mm-hmm. asks the question, what are you shopping for? How, are you spiritually fulfilled? Right. And and how can our brand, how can our product satisfy you? Or, yeah, I mean, do we need to reinvent ourselves or our product? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Or do we need to form a merger with another corporation because we're shrinking? Mm. So we need to join with the church across town to have more ecumenical worship services. Yeah. Whatever that may look like. But, and this Consolidate is... Consolidate resources. Right. Because nobody wants to declare bankruptcy. No, of course not. <laughs> Because if you're bankrupt, oh, in the case of the church, that's uh, that is pretty devastating. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's not just about money there. You're bankrupt probably in a lot of ways. But I think this brings it back around though to what you had mentioned earlier. That I think is really the key point is that one of the marks for Dr. Luther, one of the marks of the church, is the cross, bearing mm. the cross. Yeah, and that the gospel is met by non-believers with hostility and violence. And like Dr. Luther says in The Bondage of the Will, when uh, when the unregenerate man hears the gospel, it actually makes him worse. Hmm. Which is a very interesting statement that Luther says, when a non-Christian hears the gospel, it actually makes him more rebellious. It makes him angry. Wow. Because it's good news of God's grace and favor being announced to a person who essentially sees in sin and death and the devil... Uh, grace and life and Jesus, his his Savior, salvation. And so, yeah, when we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and just the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we put all the emphasis on baptism and the Lord's Supper and the Viva Vox Evangelii um, or Evangelii, if you wish, 
Yeah, throw your phone across the room. Go ahead. There we go. <laughs> I should. We should just do that from now on. We should just mispronounce every Latin term that we come across. Just we'll, mutilate we'll, we'll it. We'll blend it with like a Sicilian, Cajun? ecclesiastical, and then a little Cajun <laughs> on top. A little, a little Cajun with that Spanish lisp, that Castilian lisp. Yeah, that'd be perfect. The Evangelii, <laughs> Evangelii, <laughs> the Viva, <laughs> the Viva Box Evangelii. Oh, I have a taste for spicy chicken. Man. There we go. I like it. Uh, every time the pastor speaks in Latin, I just get this hunger for spicy chicken wings. And jambalaya. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh goodness, but uh, no. And I, and again, I'm not. I'm not bringing this up to be critical in mm. the sense of, of derogatory. I'm bringing this up in the sense to be critical in a positive sense. That to always be repenting, as we've talked about before on this show, is to always be self-critical. Yeah. And to regard yourself as not being as important as whatever word God has to give to you. And again, I must decrease that he may increase. And so how do we as individuals confront ourselves with that, that confession of faith? I must decrease so that he may increase. And then how do we as congregations, how do we as a church confront ourselves with that? Yeah, and I think I mentioned it at the beginning, but in our introduction, but you know, Oberg is helpful here in paraphrasing Luther's you know, what theological backbone for why we why we do what yeah. we do as, as far as right. missions go. And that yes, it's true that we are often get off the rails, right? Mm-hmm. And we become insular or um, you know, overly introspective and we forget like yes, we have neighbors, you know, who not only need mercy, but they but they need uh, God's grace and favor right. in Jesus Christ. So let's you know, so uh, let's let's be intentional about that. Let's you know, right. uh, make some and, effort again and again and again. Uh, I've heard it said in, in past experience. Well, you know, we talked to those people across the street ten years ago. <laughs> right, exactly. I've had that conversation <laughs> like, too. <laughs> uh, well, one, it's not the same people living across the street as we're living there ten years ago, uh, right. and two, you gave it one shot. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like it's like a like a magical uh like, you know, we gave him we gave him a flyer. We handed out a catechism. You know, it should have worked. Is, how does that go? The opportunity comes once in a lifetime. Mm. Oh, it takes a spark to get the fire going, right? There we go. Just go set brush fires across the street and it's bound That's to work. Right. No, and I, and I have this conversation quite often with my folks is that I I tell them if the gospel doesn't get a hold of you and change your heart, Nothing that I say to you is going to convince you of your need to just walk across the street and talk to your neighbor mm, or invite right. your coworker or that student at the de- that's sitting at the desk with you to a church. Mm. Because if the gospel doesn't light you up, if you're not excited, nothing I say, no, no ultimatum that I give you, no command or exhortation is really going to strike home because really what it is, it's the word of God and it's the work of the spirit. Yeah. And so if the spirit's at work, in my preaching, then I don't really have to do anything to get you to talk about the good news or to talk about your hope in Jesus or to talk about your congregation or your pastor or whatever it may it be. It isn't that those things won't happen. I think that's sometimes how that expression yeah. might be heard. Well, you, Pastor, you're just advocating for like a ecclesiastical la- laziness, right? Right. You know, ecclesial laziness. Well, just, I am, but... Well, <laughs> right, but it, it's a passivity instead of activity, right? Right, exactly. You're saying, no, this is the Spirit's work and He will work. He's promised right. to, and he will, right. and, he, and he's promised to work in this way uh, right. through the preaching of, of, of the word, through the administration of sacrament, that he's promised that that's going to have an effect, and it is going to change people's lives and the way that they relate to their neighbor, yes. uh, and and even in their desire or willingness uh, to speak the truth of Christ to them, right. to those neighbors. Right. It will Preach work. The gospel. We it have will that. Work. It's it's called it's called confidence. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's not called laziness. It's called confidence. Right. Yeah. Is that. 
and I've been around long enough to see it actually happen. And mm. I've said before, when people tell me, they let slip that they've actually been doing that. Oops. And I joke with them, you need to tell me because I need to write this stuff down because how am I supposed to measure my success as a pastor if you don't tell me that you're actually listening to what I'm telling you to do? Yeah, well, it was like the, like we were talking about with the ablaze counter. You know, you go in there, and put, right. they were called critical events. You go in there and you have to enter all your critical events and you know, all the people. Right. Are... Your critical events. <laughs> it sounds like something that happens to you in the hospital yeah. when you can't get out of bed. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Most of our folks to... would just go in there and, and log all their baptisms. <laughs> right, of course, exactly. Those were critical exactly. events. Yeah, well, I suppose. But no, I think that at root, this is what it means to be a sinner is that we don't trust God's word to do mm. what he promises. We don't trust the Holy Spirit to actually work amongst us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and therefore, we constantly have the need to supplement the work of the Spirit and the word of God with our own words and works. And like you said, it's not laziness, it's confidence that these are things are true. Yeah. As I've been asked numerous times over the past 10 years by people who've come to the church to visit and then stayed, at a certain point, we realized you actually believe what you're saying. <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, I actually do. And they're like, yeah, we just didn't, we didn't think you'd, we, we figured eventually you'd stop talking that way. Because hmm. it's so absurd sounding that you actually believe that the word of God does what he says it will do. Versus other churches we've gone to where they're constantly telling us all of these things we have to do to be Christians. Right, right. And that's, and that's really appealing to, the, the, to our sinful nature that doesn't want to let God be God. <laughs> right, until it exhausts the people you're talking to. I know. And they want to quit, and they do quit in some instances, or they just become so hopeless and frustrated that they throw up their hands and give up because they're not seeing any, like you said, I, I, I kept asking this person, they never came, so I just quit, I gave up asking people yeah i was training for the marathon and i thought i had to run the race you know like paul said and yeah i actually collapsed about halfway through right right (laughs) i didn't finish the race now what like um, (laughs) exactly now what do i do you missed the point of the right exactly yeah right is that the point of the the point isn't to win the marathon (laughs) the point is the marathon's already won (laughs) right exactly (laughs) it's in the training and it's in the discipline and it's the it's in just the fact that yeah like you said it's already won yeah i mean he uh, christ has promised uh when you die you will rise (laughs) right there you go finish line it's already finished Uh right and yeah that's the thing is we're all rushing toward death Hmm. (laughs) that's really what we're doing we're rushing toward it it's not gonna right i'm I'm just saying death is gonna catch you Regardless of whether you rush toward it or whether you adopt a really lethargic attitude. <laughs> you get to there and wait. <laughs> right, exactly. Death will find you. Death yeah, will catch up with just you. Just get out your lawn chair. Right. The Grim Reaper has a 100% success, job success rate. <laughs> mm, unless you have the Deathly Hallows. But whatever. There you go. So, and like I said, it's a long book, 500 pages, but it's imminently readable. It's a lot of fun to read. Uh, I've done pastor's Bible studies with this book before um, because I have had other pastors in my circuit who were on fire for missions mm-hmm. who used non-Lutheran material. And right. so I brought my book and said, how about we read this? And uh, what I mean by non-Lutheran material is not focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ, not focused on the sacraments. Right. And very often those materials m- may have some practical benefit. You know, do, like yes, something like, so. like, oh, you know, you could go out and you could just talk to your neighbors, you know, start a oh, community okay. garden, start a community garden. I mean, yeah, so practical suggestions, fine. But the theological underpinning, um, especially if those things, it, it'd be like saying, well, we have this mission project, but it has nothing really to do with the church, but it's something the right. church does. And like, right. So if you're going to, I don't know, have a Lutheran day school and then not actually lead the people in the day school to hear the gospel and to, to, to bring them into corporate worship, then why are you doing it? 
because you want to yeah. your, you want your neighbors to have a good education okay that's fine yeah. but is that the mission of the church right exactly again mm. to have the conversation sometimes is the most critical crucial yeah. point is just have the conversation so there's freedom to express that and let it breathe and mm. to be self-critical as a group and say is that really the mission of the church is that really what we should be pouring all of our resources into yeah or not right but if we don't talk about it we'll never know nope so let's have a conversation uh, that's what we exactly. do every week hopefully so this is gonna be a short one this week because we're recording this later in the day and i gotta go to bjj nice jujitsu so let's wrap it up with uh what have you been listening to oh listening i actually been uh i mentioned earlier in the show i've been listening intensely to podcasts and um, i found that to be beneficial one for our conversation right uh, but two i mean some of that's just speaking patterns you know ways and manners of speaking but these yeah. are largely conversations so for example um i mentioned sam harris he interviewed mm-hmm. some uh, evolutionary biologist kind of guy uh, yeah. very fascinating talked a lot about sexual ethics which may or may not be appropriate for you to listen to but um uh, especially with polygamy and polyamory mm. Right, uh, advocating it goes, a, for it goes in a lot of directions. It goes in a lot of directions, um, but also a great interview with uh, Jordan Peterson and uh, Russell Brand about the twelve steps. Yes, did yes. you watch that on YouTube? Yeah, Ye- no, I haven't listened to no, it. No, they it's so skewed. so he want he Brand was going through the twelve steps, Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Yeah. and and having Peterson kind of critique it, and okay. lo and behold, what do they find? Is that you know the, the the means are of of uh, what do you call it clinical psychology mm-hmm. and it actually corresponds pretty well to the to the twelve step process. The 12 Is that steps. freedom and tyranny? Uh, yeah, episode that's fifty two. That's it. Under yep. the skin with Russell Brand. That's possibly. it. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been listening to those um, and some of these other what did we, what did you call them the intellectual dark web. Intellectual dark, right? Only because... Erica, Brett Weinstein, Joe Rogan, Ben I, Shapiro. What's interesting about these... Paul about Rubin. The, about those, that crowd is that, one, they want to have conversations. They're willing to have conversations that are respectful and, right. um, you know, gracious to one another, right? Mm-hmm. And... Uh, they recognize that they don't have they don't share i mean you have of the list that you just mentioned i mean you have you know hardcore leftists and right you know rightists right in the same time yep. uh, and then libertarians and everybody in between and i actually that's almost what they're arguing for is is less tribalism less party politics yes um in regards to all manners of life not just mm-hmm. in, in you know secular politics but but um not free thinking so much as critical thinking right yeah very much so yeah and that's helpful for us you know in the church it's helpful for us uh, with one another uh, in our marriages and our families, mm-hmm. whatever it is, to, to not just always assume everything, um, not always throw everything out either, but but to actually just think critically about them. And, yeah, uh, no, I agree. Yeah, so I, I found that to be it's not musical, um, mm-hmm. but you know, um, I think I think it could be beneficial. The problem is, is that a lot of people that I encounter don't really want to have conversations at that level. There is that also when you listen. Well, it, it, like you said, it because like you, I listen to a lot of podcasts and mm. a lot of interviews and a lot of lectures, uh, especially when I'm driving. Yeah. And as a parent, I drive a lot. So, and as a pastor, I drive a lot, and I have a very big area that I cover as a pastor in my right. ministry. Right. And for myself too, one one side effect of of that con- listening to those conversations is that it really does. I think it pulls you along in its wake. 
and mm, you want to continue okay. the conversation after it, right? But who can um, you continue it with? Right, exactly. But then you're like, hey, did you listen to these eight podcasts that I've been listening to? And they're like, no, dude. Right. Um, but yeah, for myself too, it's the same thing. Listening to Jordan Peterson, I'll listen to, I listen to Ben Shapiro interview Joe Rogan on his Sunday right. morning thing. Right. Um, and like you said, ideologically, different sides of the street. And yet, uh, they want to have a critical conversation. And what is key, though, to all of these people is they are open to the very real possibility that they don't know everything there is to know about what they're talking about. And they might be wrong. Mm-hmm. And they're open to being persuaded of their wrongness right. and open to the possibility that they need to rethink their position on a certain area or a certain topic. Yeah. And, and, so, and the changes are often very nuanced. Yeah, so very only so. probably in hindsight, you know, after a great, great deal of time, will we be able mm-hmm. to see uh, like uh, the movement of, you know, of a some you know strongly held position right. uh, of any of those characters it's going to take it'll take that as it does with any of us no, none right. of us are over converted overnight you know right. to an idea well but it, we live in a in a time now where we want everything so fast and yeah instant, instant gratification right right microwavable ideas hmm. and it's like we were talking what was that video i sent you that you had sent me that <laughs> we sent it back and forth oh talking why, about pop music right right that actually two people have written almost all of the chart topping hits of the last like decade and a half or something it's really been only two people that have written these songs yeah effectively. and they're all yeah. the exact same music and they're the exact same beats. By, by way of analogy, um, think Nickelback, right? Right. Well, Taylor Swift, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, uh, Maroon 5, like it goes on and on and on. Any mm-hmm. top 10 Billboard like chart-topping group, wh- whatever single that got them there was written by two guys, a yeah. Swedish dude and an American guy. Same they wrote formula, all of these. Every one of them. Yeah, same formula. It's, it literally is the exact same note, note structure. It's the exact same Maybe in a different key. Yes, different key, but the same four instruments. And what you what you end up getting is um, brainwashing, mm-hmm. is essentially what it is. It's brainwashing, and you're being conditioned when you listen to these songs to have a, a specific reaction to what you're being sold, and so that you'll constantly digest it and go back for more of it. Do you, remember, uh, do you remember when Pandora launched? That right. it was called the Music Genome Project? Yeah, I remember that. I remember yeah. that? Yeah. yeah and, so exactly. the, and the idea was that there's so much musical diversity, let's try to classify all the diversity. Right. And and they moved away from that because <laughs> yeah. there's not all that much diversity. There's not that diversity. Yeah. And it's and a lot harder like, project to, than they thought right. it was going to be. Well, and, that, and then likewise, intellectually, you see this popularly speaking, is that we want immediate instant gratification we don't want to be challenged and we don't want to be forced to think and be made uncomfortable Mm. or or to be confronted with things that don't uh, cause us pleasure this is why marvel is so successful yeah it's the exact same formula dr strange and iron man are the exact same character (laughs) it's the exact same movie just in different one's magic and one's technology um it's the beats. It's the tropes. It's what we're used to. We like it. It hits all of our pleasure centers. Our archetypes. Yeah. Archety- exactly. And the thing I appreciate then about those kinds of conversations in these podcasts that we're talking about, Peterson, Shapiro, Rubin, Rogan, whatever it might be, is, for myself anyways, what they're exploring is the purpose of life, mm-hmm. the goal and the purpose of life. And now that that has been taken out of the church, the conversation about love, for example, then, is being discussed by these people and all of them share one thing in common, though, which is that they've all been the victims of tribalism run rampant. Yeah, exactly. Toxic tribalism, they call it. Yeah, so whether, whether it's academia li- or yeah. uh, religion or... Socially or whatever it might be, interpersonally. They've all been 
hit by it hard. And both on the left and the right, both conservatives and liberals, progressives, whatever it might be. And for me to listen to non-religious people or just people that are agnostic, and again, Ben Shapiro is an Orthodox Jew. He's an observant Jew. Mm -hmm. To talk to an agnostic, Joe Rogan, and yet Rogan... You know, at a certain point of his life would have told you, I'm not quite sure I'm an agnostic. I definitely lean one direction. Whereas now in his life, he's saying, I'm agnostic. I'm firmly in the middle. I'm not saying there's not, but I'm not saying there is because I had a really bad experience with Roman Catholicism growing up. So I'm not really comfortable with that How can I really know? Right. And how can I know? And that's really the point of the conversation then is I am open to being persuaded that I'm wrong. However, make a compelling argument. And, And especially with Jordan Peterson, who may or may not believe in God, but he's so smart and so clever with his words it's kind of hard to pin him down and what's also interesting about him is that he's not afraid to engage the content right exactly you know? exactly and and knowing full well that yeah, lecturing on the book of genesis is going to get him into yeah right hot water with a number of camps right exactly yeah. and yet he does it very skillfully mm-hmm. and i think too even with a podcast like ear hustle which is from san quentin prison it's still that conversation is, what is life like for people who are never getting out of prison? Yeah. In the prison, what is their experience? And the things that they talk about are the golden rule and questions of purpose and meaning. In fact, the latest, uh, last two, uh, the, not the latest, but the the, pre, the one last week was about uh, people on death row. Yeah. And how do, how do you find meaning when you're on death row? There's a guy that's been on death row for 30 years talking about how he finds, like, how does he get up every day? Yeah. When he, it's like, that's crazy. Well, it's kind of uh, like uh, guys who come back from uh, from the wars. Right. Uh, you know, especially after the Gulf War, you know, with PTSD, and they're, they were just, you know, mentally, physically, you know, spiritually just completely discombobulated. And uh, what did they do is uh, I, they found that if they provided them with a dog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because the dog has a schedule. Right. Um, the dog gets up, it needs to eat, it needs to go out, it needs to go for a walk, it needs to go to the vet. Um, then that brought order into that chaos that, that was their mind, you know? Yeah. And brought recovery and gave them purpose. They right. they, well, they had a reason yeah. to live. They lived for their dog. And, and seemed- now that we know that animals and insects see in the electromagnetic spectrum, we also know that dogs can see from the electromagnetic spectrum when we're off. They can see your emotion. Yeah, words. they can see your emotions exactly, <laughs> and so that's why that's why when you're sick, for example, or you're sad, a dog will come up to you and put his head on your lap and mm-hmm. just wag his tail or and sit like, at your stare, feet and, and won't or sit go at your away. feet because they actually in within the context of their vision and the way they see you, they actually see your emotions because they take the form of these electromagnetic oh, impulses. Yeah. yeah, man. Um, and therefore, what what better way to recover from trauma than have an animal? who loves you unconditionally, who can read your emotions, can see your emotions and actually responds to them and reacts to them. Yeah. And part of the, part of our challenge is that, you know, people do come to the church looking for purpose, fulfillment, mm-hmm. um, meaning, and yeah. um, our answers aren't always that satisfying. Right. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Now, Lutherans, I think, I mean, we have a strong, we can make a pretty strong case because of our, the whole theology around vocation that we teach, mm-hmm. right, from Luther. Um, which helps, but you know, I, I think that's a challenge for us is to say, okay, these these all these thinkers they're desperately looking for this, right? They're trying to understand why why do I even exist? I mean, what what's mm-hmm. my what's the point? Right? Uh, is there a point? And and the the old answer, you know, from Nietzsche afterwards, right, that there is no point, right. um, isn't satisfying. 
No, absolutely. Well, of course it's not because you still got to, you still got to get up in the morning. <laughs> you yeah. still got to go to work. Yeah. You still, you still got to interact with human beings. And, and, you know, <laughs> some of our, our favorite uh, theological thinkers um, are the folks at Pixar, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, so what's a world look like that has no work and everyone mm-hmm. has leisure? Um, now we're to, what was the movie? Oh, Wally. Bert, Wally. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, everyone's <laughs> fat, fat yeah. and happy, um, yeah. kind of. Uh, drugged probably and uh, very much that, so and that's it and right. and there's no point or purpose the world's a garbage dump yeah. and you're sitting on a yacht and there's no love there's no joy there's right. no there's no conflict there's no sorrow there's no grief there's none right. of the the range of human experience that actually makes it all interesting right mm-hmm. well and i think to your point too when we get when we get ghettoized we don't think that anybody outside of our tribe has anything important or of value to say to us mm. because they're not our kind of lutheran or not even christian so therefore they have nothing how could they have anything of value to say to us yeah like a well, woman pastor for example we're in the missouri synod really or pastors. yeah um or uh, a guy like joe rogan or aubrey mm-hmm. marcus or yeah. jordan peterson whoever it may be that no Again, Paul has conversations with philosophers and then takes their philosophy captive to Christ. And that's really why I do it, too, is, one, I'm infinitely curious. I love to learn. Mm-hmm. And I've never lost my childlike curiosity, for sure. And I think I did for a time. And then, mm-hmm. and then this kind of world of podcasting where, where um, your ideas are not where ideas aren't being held captive or by gatekeepers, right? Yeah, right. But yeah, there's by, no gatekeepers. Uh, popular media. So mm-hmm. there's an opportunity for this kind of conversation, even by, you know, what I would consider myself as like a novice philosopher, right? Sure. <laughs> at, at best. Absolutely. <laughs> right. And, uh, but an opportunity to actually engage in that material and, and just start to mm-hmm. um, expand our ways of thinking right. and, and communicating. Right. You don't have to go to college anymore to get an education. Well, and I think <laughs> there, I mean, there's an argument made um, that what's lacking in our um, educational approach, you know, with progressive ed as we have it. Right is that we don't actually teach thinking we actually just teach subject matter we teach right no they just this is what you need to know this is what you need to know for the test pass the test and then we'll move on to the next preparation for the next test right and some of the like hard sciences i mean yes there's empirical knowledge that you must have right to be able to 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 study in that field Mm -hmm. Um, but you can learn that and you can learn that very rapidly right like you can learn to be a coffee roaster and have a successful coffee business in, right. in three years. I mean, it's not that right. hard. It, it takes time. You have to dedicate right. the time to it, to, to do it. Well, and well. Even in my case, when I was in college, I wouldn't have, have, have dreamed of sitting in on a class in quantum mechanics. Mm, no. <laughs> and yet now because of YouTube and podcasting, I listen to lectures on quantum mechanics and interviews with, with quantum physicists all the time. Or what, what is it? Khan Academy is another one, right? Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. But it's just like, yeah, I just, I jump in on those and I can take my time with it and they talk. And again, I have an, I have an opportunity to, to listen to people from all over the world, the very best in their field, yeah. not only as far as science goes, but as far as being able to teach. Right. And you have TED and TEDx talks and all these oh, uh, right, avenues yeah. now that are available to us. And you have actually whole curriculums on the internet or in podcast form. In fact, I think the St. Louis seminary for sure puts their stuff up on iTunes. They have. iTunes yeah, and, U. They and have uh, Fort Wayne seminary has pretty much all of their, uh, video lectures and a lot of the audio all, every sermon goes up on there you okay, have a lot right. of opportunity yeah not as many right, uh, classroom there. lectures but mm-hmm. but certainly the symposia lectures and yeah but yeah like you said for me it is to elevate the way that i think mm. to to take it to another level and to say hey I, I bet you haven't thought about this before 
Or, oh, you've read some Carl Jung? Well, here's a guy who's an expert in Carl Jung who can explain it for you because you didn't understand it. Or like you said, I've read a lot of philosophy, but I'm an amateur at best. So mm-hmm. let me listen to somebody who can really break this down for me and explain to me whether I was right in my conclusions about Nietzsche or Feuerbach or Plato. Right. And the intention there um, is not is teaching, right? Yes. So it was kind of experience we had in the hospital. Uh, by the way, uh, new baby, Patrick is his name. Uh, my wife needed an emergency C-section and she was, she was quite ill, right? And he didn't, the doctor is like, no, she has to have surgery now, you got to sign. You know, and that was really kind of off-putting because you're like, well, explain to me why and what. And there's no time for details, right? And then right. afterwards, he spent... Oh, he spent hours with us just explaining all of the, all all of the um, conditions that she had and what and, and relatively you know how severe they were uh, compared to other cases he had seen, and what they know and what they don't know about the about the disease and you know he went through the whole thing. It was clear to me he was an he was an educator that and and that what was really he was as frustrated as we were before the operation that he didn't get a chance to explain to us why that surgery was necessary, right? Because yeah. he came back to us later. And so I think, I mean, I think that's, I think it's spreading because you don't see that a lot with bedside manner of a lot of doctors, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're not interested in explaining you why. They just want to tell you here's what to do because it's their job. And they do want what's best for you. They're not trying to like hurt or harm mm-hmm. you, right? But that, to meet one that was an educator um, because he wanted us to understand and to know and perhaps then to share it with others, you know, and maybe we'll encounter somebody who has similar symptoms and, and, you know, so for prevention's sake, you know, then uh, yeah. they could be warned, you know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, it's, it's a different way of relating to one another and, and relating to one another in terms of knowledge, right? Right. Um, as to say, you know, a, a corporate body of knowledge is a good thing and, mm-hmm. and reasoning together is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mean we're always going to agree. That isn't necessarily the end game, actually, is that we're all on the same page, but that we right. actually... Um, can find enough um, to live together without, you know, constant murder. You know? Right. <laughs> constant murder. <laughs> However that takes shape. Exactly. It doesn't even yeah. have to be physical. Right. Just cutting each other apart with our tongues on social media or in yeah. you know, the local uh, cafe or whatever it might be. Yeah. And most of those people we talked about are not terribly active on social media. Right. Exactly. And that's, if there's anything, the right. I was going to say, and if there's anything that I've drawn from those podcast conversations as far back as two years ago, when I really, really dove deep into it was all of that time that I was spending on social media was time that I wasn't living mm, yeah. my real life. Like I wasn't living in reality. I was living in a, a projection of reality or as one person said on a podcast i was listening to today social media is just your ego it's Mm -hmm. that's what it is it becomes your ego yeah it is your ego it's a project it's just the manifestation of your ego in these little sentences and these pictures well and it's well uh, the ego that as you project it to be right Right, exactly exactly because it's not real therefore you have to create you create reality it's a false reality um and so this is the point then is that the more engagement you have with reality then the the more unreality appears for what it is mm. and the more disengaged you become from conversations and from relationships and in in our case even from churches mm-hmm. or pastoral conversations or whatever that are not real because right. you recognize oh that's your perception and you don't really want to have a conversation about that so there's really nothing more for us to do <laughs> at this point yeah and it's not because- that i don't care about you i do um but i but i i can't play that game Right, it's not laziness; hmm. it's just recognition or lack of that, love, even. 
right? Right. Or no, because what it is is recognition that you can't change people Mm-mm. unless they want to be changed. Right. You can't help a person unless they ask for your help. And try and change yourself and see how difficult that is. And then you'll understand how impossible it is to change another person. Right. And how arrogant it is to want to change other people. <laughs> and so, uh, no, and that's, that's, that's kind that's of a tangent awesome. off of podcasting. But no, that's kind of the, the consequence of those conversations that we listen to. In regards to Tim Ferriss or... Mm -hmm. or, Oh, yeah, we didn't mention Tim. Yeah, Yeah. Tim. Yeah. And I, you know, uh, we've been having this conversation for a long time now, a couple of years, in in a couple of different show formats, right? Yeah, right. (laughs) But um, coming to the the conclusion that conversation does matter, right? Well, as we've come to the conclusion, conversation, the the conversation itself matters more than setting goals, for where the conversation has to end or where we have to get to. It's like, no, not, not the means and the ends don't matter. All that yeah, matters is the conversation. The, sometimes the ball moves forward. Sometimes it, it, there's retraction, right? I mean, you back up right. and say, let's go back and rethink this. Um, you know, because what assumptions do we have that we, mm-hmm. that we were blind to at the time? <laughs> so many. Mm, always. The more I know, the more I don't know. Mm. Yeah. So Good. otherwise, um, go check out Curtis Harding. I love him. He's a good soul singer. Like a, he's a modern throwback to oh, the yeah. classic days of soul singers. Got a great voice. Kind of the what do you want to say? The Sam Cooke, oh, uh, David Ruffin kind mm-hmm. of yeah. vibe. And then Gary Clark Jr. I've been kind of vibing on Gary oh, Clark good. Jr.'s yeah. live stuff a lot lately, um, just because he's really one of the last living blues masters. Right, and his live stuff is is the stronger material. Oh, it's redonkulous, dude. It's right. <laughs> just it's it just yeah. Um, Adrian Ballou, Power Trio. Mm, there you go. Uh, he did a couple sets with, um, let's see, who's a drummer from Tool? Mm. <sighs> I didn't remember that guy's name. Yeah, sorry. I just watched, an, again, I just watched it because the, the new album's coming out pretty quick here. Right, and then also uh, Les Claypool. So Adrian Ballou, Les Claypool, and that, whoever that drummer is. I forget really? His name. Yeah. Uh, That's crazy. Power Trio. I mean, usually, I think usually when he was touring, it was... Um, Danny uh, Carey, that's it's Danny yeah, Carey, right? Danny Carey, yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. I thought I bet you I saw. I think I saw a video performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a few on YouTube, so go yeah, check yeah. those out. Adrian Blue is a nut. Um, yeah, just, for sure, just brilliant. Always been into like electronic effects for his guitar, mm-hmm. but, but uh, also uh, he was well, he was really a protege of uh, Frank Zappa. So if you know Zappa's mm-hmm. guitar technique, um, which was Makes a lot self-taught, of sense. yeah, you see yeah. it with Blue. But he also played King Crimson. I mean, he's got mm-hmm. a lot of skill. Yeah. under robert fripp you you pick up a thing or two i'm you sure a few tricks that's right yeah so good stuff awesome sauce all right well i got nothing left in the tank it's time. i'm gonna go I'm gonna and take care of my family you sounds go, good you can go uh try to choke somebody to death uh i'm kind gonna of. close oh, oh i'm gonna <laughs> um Otherwise, uh, thanks for listening. Again, as always, we appreciate all the support and all the feedback. Uh, If you think we deserve it, go give us a five-star rating on iTunes and leave a positive review. Go buy Gillespie's coffee. He has even, and now he has an extra mouth to feed, so he has even more mouths to feed. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's right, baby. Mm -hmm. And uh, come back next week for a brand new podcast, probably Detlef Schultz's Mission from the Cross. I think that's a good plan. All right. I hope we pass the audition. See ya. Adios. You summoned me, Dr. Frankenstein? Indeed I did, Igor.
I wanted to tell you that I'm retiring from the business of monster creation to do something that requires even more genius. What's that, Doctor? Coffee roasting, Igor. There are so many wonderfully complex variables to busy my intellect with. Try the end product, Igor. It's brilliant and delicious. Not bad, Doctor. But have you considered just ordering your coffee pre-roasted? Preposterous, Igor. No one else has the scientific attention to detail that this enterprise requires. What about coffee by Gillespie? Coffee by Gillespie? Christopher Gillespie is a master at selecting high-quality specialty coffee beans that are as sustainable as they are tasty. And to roast them to their finest, he uses traditional techniques combined with the latest technology. Something a scientist like you should appreciate, Doctor. Indeed, indeed. But the coffee, Igor, is it any good? Everything about coffee by Gillespie is done with taste in mind. Gillespie even ships your coffee directly to your address so it doesn't lose its delectable flavor sitting on the store shelf. You've convinced me, Igor. Coffee by Gillespie clearly has me beat for coffee know-how. Where may I get some? Just go online to gillespie.coffee and order any time. Let it be done, Igor. But opt for the decaf. Frankie can be a handful when he's had too much caffeine. Coffee by Gillespie. It's brilliant and delicious.